welcome to the Like Phil podcast. This is John Faithful Hamer. Today we're going to be talking with David Boxenhorn, an entrepreneur and all-around interesting guy, uh, about his idea that of what he calls Mundia and Modia. It's a kind of a short story, or a par- he says it's not a parable, but I think it, it reminds me a lot of a, a parable or a thought experiment. He says that we live in two different realities. We have Mundia, which is the real world. He doesn't have a kind of matrix, oh, we're just brains in a vat or something like that. He has a, the real world exists and we have to navigate the natural world. But we also exist in something called Modia. And Modia is the social world. That's the world that we create as human society. So Modia is understood with sociological analysis and Mundia is understood through science, through kind of observation of our, our senses and things like that. And that we we have to, in order to be successful as human beings, we have to navigate both Mundia and Modia, uh, but some people seem much more attuned to one or the other, right? And that can create you know, problems and misunderstandings. And, and it's a fascinating scheme, and it actually, I think, uh, it clarifies a great deal and it also dovetails very nicely into a lot of the recent findings of evolutionary psychology and the idea of how biological organisms evolve their sensory perceptions of the world. Right? So we, we generally seem to evolve the senses that we need for survival and things that we, that we don't need to see, we don't see. Right. Uh, but before we get to that fascinating discussion, uh, a little bit of housekeeping. Uh, if you have not joined our Facebook group, I strongly encourage you to do so. It's Likeville. So if you just enter that into the search bar, you should find it. Um, if you're on Twitter, our handle is at the Likeville pod. And those are important because that's where we usually put in all of our updates about what's happening with the podcast, upcoming guests. So if you want specific questions, if you want us to ask them questions, that we'll do that there. Also, we have various plans in the books of doing live live stream things. Anyway, so join that. It's very good to keep up to date uh, with the podcast. As you know, uh, our main streaming location for the moment is on iTunes. But as I've mentioned before, uh, if you are not a, if you have a problem with Apple, you can also listen to the podcast on Overcast.fm. Uh, so you just go in there, type in Likeville, and you will find us. And also, as I've mentioned before, we are trying to get the podcast on Spotify, and hopefully that will go through soon. Um, if you can, if you are able to. We'd very much appreciate if you would become a Patreon supporter of the podcast. It costs money to make these things. We have to get equipment. We have to subscribe to all sorts of services. It's, it takes a lot of time. So if you think this kind of long-form discussion that is sort of intelligent, uh, charitable discussions that are not people yelling at each other and debating and it's unedited and unscripted, if you think that kind of reasonable civil conversation is worthwhile, then support it, right? Uh, you can do so by going to www.patreon.com slash podcast. This episode is brought to you by our 
Patreon supporters. It's also brought to you by Elsa's, which is a bar in Montreal. Fantastic place. In my opinion, the best bar in Montreal. If you're in Montreal, you probably already know about it. Uh, if you're not in Montreal and you're planning on visiting, definitely check out Elsa's. It is fantastic. I will be going there after this podcast and having the uh, the shrimp tacos, and I'll be having a shot of Jameson and a glass of Roos. Uh, so that's where I'll be going afterwards. Uh, it's also brought to you by Good Mix, which is a granola mix. It's paleo. It's incredibly good for you. Very sort of nutritious. Very virtuous. Uh, it's made lovingly by by hand in Vermont. They to get all the ingredients together, very high quality ingredients. And it's great, fantastic stuff. You have it in the morning with yogurt. It fills you for hours and hours. It's amazing. Uh, and it does wondrous things for your digestion, which I'm not going to go into. You can use your imagination. Uh, this episode is also brought to you by uh, Seb Furtado Photography. Uh, Sebastian is a professional fine art photographer who is offering private online one-on-one -on -one classes for those who want to drastically improve their skills in photography. Uh, he's available to participants worldwide. An experienced teacher and workshop organizer, Sebastian Furtado will teach you how your camera basics work, how they work, the lighting, lenses, how to shoot images and perfect them uh, using Lightroom and Photoshop. If you're interested in this, go to www.sebfurtado.com slash store for more information. All right, without further ado, I give you David Boxenhorn. So welcome to the Lakeville Podcast. This is John Faithful Hamer. Today I'm going to be talking with entrepreneur and all-around interesting guy, David Boxenhorn. Uh, good morning, David. Good morning. Good morning. So it's, it's so amazing okay? to hear your voice after knowing you for about what, 10 years in social media land to actually uh, hear your voice live. It's, it's amazing. Wow. Has it really been that long? Yeah, yeah, I think it has. I think it has. It's about 2008 on the the Taleb page. I think that's when we... You're, you're right. Oh, yeah. Gosh. You're right. <laughs> it's been that you're long. You're right. So I, uh, there's so many things that I, I want to talk with you about, but I wanted to start off by this amazing parable that you wrote. Uh, I'm not sure. Would you call it a parable? It's not a parable. Uh, what, would you, what would you call it? Um... um. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, well. It's it seems to be like to have a lot of the qualities of uh, a sort of a New Testament parable or something from the Mishnah. But uh, uh, anyway, so I was wondering if you do you have it handy because I wanted to actually start off by by reading it, it by um, reading I, it, I, and I then can, we would I discuss it. I, I, I am on a computer, so you can get it. So I can go get it. Yeah, so why don't you start off by reading that, and then we can discuss the sort of uh, an exegesis of it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Oh, boy. Okay. Um, you hear me? Oh, yeah, yeah. I have never, I have never read this out loud. Oh, really? <laughs> I've read it to about never. 10 classes out loud. Also, maybe you should read it. 
right. You have a lot more experience than me. If you want me to, all right. So it's uh, this is Mundia and Modia by David Boxenhorn. Uh, I pronounce it Mundia and Modia. Mundia as in mundane. Mundia as in mundane. Mundia and Modia. We humans live in two worlds. One world, I call Mundia, is the world of immutable laws. For example, gravity, electromagnetism, and supply and demand. It is the world that we see when we look out at the natural landscape. The other world, I call Modia, is the world of social relationships. For example, love, hate, admiration, envy, loyalty, and gratitude. It is the world that we see when we look out at the social landscape. I believe that while all of us live in both worlds, most of us live in one world much more than the other. We are Mundians or Modians, not both. Mundians look out at the world and see the natural landscape. Modians, the social landscape. This fact explains a lot of phenomena that have puzzled me for a long time. At the most basic level, it explains this. When faced with a problem, what is the heuristic that we use for solving it? Mundians use a naturalistic model, while Modians use a sociological model. The nature of these two models is very different, often leading to very different answers. Mundia. The world is made of immutable laws. We can successfully manipulate the world by learning them. Over the course of our lifetime, we can gradually build up our knowledge of the world. Our knowledge never goes out of date. We might get something wrong and have to update our understanding of things, given new information, but the underlying world that our knowledge describes is fundamentally unchangeable. There is no such thing as old-fashioned knowledge. Moreover, the same is true for society as a whole. Over thousands of years, we have gradually built up a knowledge of the world's immutable laws, and the best way for an individual to become knowledgeable is to learn this collective wisdom. If something is unknown, or if there is some disagreement about the way things are, the way to resolve it is to understand things better, whether by experimentation or by reason. The facts speak for themselves. Modia. The world is made of relationships between people. We can successfully manipulate the world by figuring out who is powerful or by becoming powerful ourselves. We must learn to be responsive to people in the right way or to act in a way which will elicit the response we want. How we look, dress, how we express ourselves, and even the opinions that we hold are all factors in interpersonal relationships. Since power relationships are always changing, this world, unlike Mandia, is continually shifting, and knowledge about the world quickly goes out of date. Intelligent Modians use their wits to develop an acute sensitivity to the zeitgeist. They must know whether to support the powerful in the hopes of being raised by association, or perhaps rebel in the hopes of joining or starting a new power center. They must know who and what is in or out, since a faux pas can lead to immediate loss of status. Finally, for the most part, the world of Modia, unlike Mundia, is a zero-sum game. One person's gain is another's loss. Status relationships can never be win-win. Now, you might think that Mundia and Modia are non-overlapping magisteria, if only they were. I will give you an example of how they are not. The anthropogenic global warming debate. I am not, personally, knowledgeable enough about this issue to have an informed opinion about it. 
Most likely, neither are you. But there's a good chance that you have an opinion, informed or not, and might even believe it very strongly. How did you form your opinion? The answer most likely depends on whether you are a Mundian or a Modian. A Modian would say, obviously there is anthropogenic global warming. All the right people believe it. There is consensus among the experts. A Mundian would say, even though there is a consensus among experts on this issue, there are some experts who disagree. How do we know they are not right? Only a few decades ago, the experts were warning about global cooling. Minority views have often overturned the scientific consensus. Not enough time has passed to come to a conclusion. The jury is still out. Note that I am not saying anything about the truth value of anthropogenic global warming, only about the heuristic that we use to make decisions when we are not well informed. You might also notice that being pro-anthropogenic global warming is generally associated with the political left, while being anti-anthropogenic anti global warming is associated with the right. I don't much like the terms left and right as political descriptions. Liberal and conservative are even worse, because to most people they imply ideology. I don't believe that ideology is consistent over time. When I look at the ideology of the left or right a hundred years ago and look at it now, I don't see much continuity. Issues that the left or right supported a hundred years ago seem to have no relationship to issues that they support today. When I look at policy, I see even less continuity. The continuity that I do see is the difference between Mundia and Modia. Why is it that Hollywood tends to be leftist, while farmers tend to be on the right? It is because success in Hollywood depends on successfully manipulating people, while farmers must manipulate nature. You can make a list of professions and easily see that the more Modian they are, the more left-leaning they tend to be, and the more Mundian they are, the more right-leaning. Thus, people who work in the media tend to be on the left, and engineers tend to be on the right. Business people tend to be on the right because they are judged by objective standards of profit and loss. But those business people whose success depends on understanding fashion tend more to the left. Wherever you see objective standards, you see Mundians. Wherever the standards are subjective, Modians. All human institutions tend to become Modian over time for the simple reason that they are made up of people. The more subjective the criteria for success, the more Modian the organization will become. Those institutions that have little or no exogenous criteria for success, like government, academia, or the nonprofit sector, will inevitably come to be dominated by Modians, whatever their explicit goals may be. Businesses, which must make a profit to survive, are not immune to this tendency. Though they have exogenous criteria for success, it is a difficult task to propagate the objective criteria for success down through the ranks. At each level of decision-making, there will be some degree of sub subjectivity, and by the time we reach the bottom rank, decisions might be completely Modian. But in the business world, there is some good news for Mundians. Those businesses that become too Modian will fail. Mundia and Modia explain why people tend to move rightwards as they age. We are all born Modians, knowing nothing about the world, but trusting our parents to inform us. Later, we learn from our teachers and our peers. It is usually perfectly clear who has the right opinions in our society, and we accept their opinions as facts. But as we move away from the orbit of our parents 
an interesting thing happens. We become acutely aware of the social hierarchy of our peers. It often becomes clear that the high-status opinions in the society are different, often diametrically opposed to those of our parents. Which do we choose? Most of us still don't have a well-formed inner model of the world from which to make a Mundian decision. But most of us value highly our status among our peers. So it's an easy choice. We abandon the opinions of our parents and embrace those of our peers. As we age, we gradually learn more about Mundia. Its immutable nature means that our knowledge about it is cumulative. Occasionally, we learn things that seem to contradict what we thought we knew. And we have to reconsider our ideas. But the direction is always forward. Nothing of the sort happens in Modia, at least on a macro scale. Opinion makers are always changing. Intellectual fashions go in and out of style. To a Modian, it seems natural to keep up with the latest fashion. And they are instinctively swept along. But a Mundian soon becomes disillusioned. The world is supposed to be immutable. When our personal experiences of the world contradict its social messages... Mundians rebel, and so they gradually move to the right. You might have detected above my own personal bias. I am, I admit, a Mundian. But I do not believe that Mundians are always right, nor is Modia an illusion. In fact, Modia is probably more important than Mundia, even to Mundians. Mundians crave social success and status no less than Modians, and usually more than they crave success in farming or building bridges that won't fall down. A typical Mundian mistake is to assume that success in Mundia will naturally lead to success in Modia. It might, but it might not. A successful movie star will always be more popular than a successful businessman. I also think that Modia is important in its own right, especially on the micro level of interpersonal relations. On the macro level, marketing is a part of life, for better or for worse, and it's an important skill. In the arts, why not? Viva la Modia. Why not enjoy it? The problem comes when you use Modian skills to solve a Mundian problem, or vice versa. Everybody knows that Mundian skills won't keep your bridges from falling down, but we still choose bridge builders partly, at least, for Modian reasons. Everybody knows that truth isn't a popularity contest, but we still tend to view a recent scientific consensus as truth and call dissenters deniers. Conversely, Mundia won't help you get along with your spouse, your co-workers, or make you popular. In the end, we humans live in two worlds, Mundia and Modia. Enjoy the difference. David Boxenhorn. That is fantastic. That, I, you know, there's so many things that I want to talk to you about that. But the first that just springs to mind immediately, I'm, I, are you into the uh, novelist Steel, Neil Stevenson at all? Uh, not really. I've heard of him. Yeah, he said he. I've never. Techies really like him. Yeah, Techies really like him. He's uh, he wrote like Snow Crash. Uh, he's done a, a lot of no, a lot of novels. But I'm reading rereading one of his novels right now called Seven Eves, which is uh, he just came out in 2015. It is a just a, a mind blowing novel. Very, it's the, the basic premise is that. It's a disaster story. I mean, the, the Earth is going to be destroyed, uh, and they but they know when, and they've they've predicted it, and uh -huh. so they have to basically the the surface of the Earth is going to be uninhabitable for uh, a couple hundred years, and so they have to get people up into a space station. They have to build this large like Noah's Ark, 
and they have to get people up there to to live in this for a couple hundred years before they can recolonate the surface of the earth and it's amazing i i thought you know i was listening to this novel last night i had a the audiobook version of it and i kept thinking about your whole you know mundi and modia because the people that are chosen to go up in this noah's ark are mainly scientists right and so they're very much right they're very much uh mundians and they say they're they're very rational they're very reasonable they believe uh, and they're they're not very good at modia at all right and one thing that's amazing is this one uh this one woman who is just a conniving, really kind of sort of an evil person. She's actually uh, the president of the United States, and she sneaks uh-huh. up onto the thing. And she's a she's a very very manipulative person, but she is unbelievably skilled at Modia, and she ends uh-huh. up turning the community against the scientific leaders because she's so much better at picking up on subtle resentments on manipulating people, on building mm-hmm. consensus, mm-hmm. on she's very emotionally manipulative. And it's very interesting because uh, there's this one of very, very intelligent, kind of brilliant woman who's a, a physicist, Ivy. And she has this realization that, you know, I shouldn't have, to use David Boxenhorn language, she says, I shouldn't have devalued Modia so much because clearly it's actually important to have these skills. Right to uh, and she she sort of has this realization as she's actually dying. <laughs> I mean, but uh, oh boy, yeah. Anyway, it's a it's a it's a great it's a great sort of theory. How did you come up with this? Well, I, I've been thinking about this basically since I was a child because uh, I I wasn't very skilled in Modia as a child, <laughs> and this is the weird thing. I, ha- I did not know what I was not skilled in. It took me years to figure out. Like, I knew something was going on. <laughs> I didn't know what it was. So you were that bad. You were that bad that you didn't realize why you were bad. Well, you know something? You know something? The, the, the really bad ones don't even know there's something that they're, that they're, that they're missing. That, that's my point. That's my point. <laughs> So I knew that I knew that there was something that I was missing. Okay, so you had enough. You had enough of a, a modia sense to be able to realize you weren't very good at it. I knew that something else was going on, and I didn't know what it was. Yeah. And you know, this is the weirdest thing. My youngest youngest daughter is very um, skilled in both areas. <laughs> why, why are youngest kids so often the best at this? I guess. I guess. I, I guess they're I not know. the is biggest. True, is oh yeah, it's it's the stereotype. Well, well, yeah. What? Well, then she meets it. <laughs> my, my youngest daughter. I remember walking to her, her to kindergarten when she was five years old. The kindergarten was like a five-minute walk away from our house, like a ten-minute walk for her. And walking her, I listened to her. She would talk about this one's friends with that one, and this one is is having a problem with that one. And these groups are, are are like allying with these groups, and all this like social stuff that was going on in her kindergarten. And she was just like prattling on, like it wasn't a big deal for her. She was just telling me what's on her mind. And I'm there thinking like, when I was 20 years older than she is, I didn't understand it, but she understands now. Yeah, no, I know exactly. When I was in kindergarten, yeah. 
I was in kindergarten, I had no idea that, that there were any of this was going. All I knew was like I liked some kids, I didn't like some kids. I had my own relationships with whatever they were with each kid. I had no idea that they were like they all had relationships with each other, and this was important for my relationships and all these like things that were going on. Yeah, that's that's so, amazing. Well, it's it's funny because there's so many parallels in to what you're saying in this in this piece. But uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, uh, we often remember him now in the the 20th century and the 21st century for things uh, like you know the discourse on the origin of inequality and on the social contract and things like that. But in his own time, and in the hundred years after uh, after his death, he was most well known for a book which we've mostly forgotten called Emile, right? Which was a, a, a book on education. And it's mm -hmm. it's an absolutely fascinating, fascinating book. And it's uh, the basic premise of it is, well, is wrong. But anyway, I'll leave that alone. But the basic premise is that you can make people, right? I mean, so uh -huh. a lot uh -huh. of the utopian 20th century product projects were, were based on sort of Rousseauian foundations and the French right. Revolution and all this stuff. But besides the fact that a lot of his premises are wrong, a lot of his arguments are fascinating. And one of them he says about how to raise a child properly. He says the aristocracy in Europe, especially in France, have the absolute worst way to raise a child. And to use Boxenhorn language, they raise all kids to be 100% Modians. And so they Modians. Modians. Yeah, completely yeah. Modians. That you you teach the child that the way that you make things happen in the world is by manipulating people, by lying, wow. by saying what you're supposed to say that and he wow. said what you need to teach children is that the natural world has sharp edges and hard, you know, walls and that there are there are consequences to your actions that have nothing to do with other people's whims. So he says, for instance, to give you a classic example, he says, if a kid has a temper tantrum and, and they throw a rock through their window, you should make them sleep in that room with that, that hole so that it gets very cold wow. at night. And they should sleep for the night in uh, that freezing cold room and realize that the window is there for a purpose. And that right. they should rather oh, than wow. rather than them being taught by getting a spanking by a human being or being yelled at by a human being, all that teaches them is that uh, I have to not do this to avoid the wrath of a human being that has power wow. over me. And so, in all these different ways, he says you have to let them know that. So, if a kid wants to go outside in the middle of the winter uh, with totally inappropriately dressed, don't scream and yell mm -hmm. at them. Tell them you should dress appropriately and then let them go out and freeze their asses off, uh -huh. right? Uh -huh. And learn a lesson about, uh, so if they're, in, in all, and some of the things he says would get you arrested today. Like if a kid is playing with a, a coring knife, uh, you know, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, let them, <laughs> let them play with it. To, to <laughs> let them, no, 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 that he would say no, but let them cut themselves a little bit and realize uh -huh. that uh -huh. the reason why you're telling them to be careful around the knife is because it's dangerous right mm -hmm. and so you're teaching them a respect for the natural limits of the world mm -hmm. right and it's you uh, know it's amazing I, I'm, I'm amazed by that um, partly because that's a really Israeli way of thinking really as far I didn't know it 
Yes. The idea is that that um, there should not be punishments, there should be consequences. Yeah. That that children should, should feel the natural consequences of whatever they do wrong as much as possible. Yeah. Although you do protect them from danger, of course. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I, I wouldn't be surprised if there's... I wouldn't be surprised if there's a connection because I know that uh, a lot of these sort of uh, very kind of enlightened and progressive education models, which I know were central to the to a lot of the kibbutz education and also to a lot of the, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if there's actually an intellectual connection because Rousseau was a a huge, he had a very big effect on revolutionary uh, revolutionizing ideas about how to teach children, and he said you need to move away from constantly hitting them all the time and punishment. And you have to move towards uh, towards eliciting their natural curiosity and stimulating. He said humans are naturally very curious to figure out how things work. So if you want, for instance, if you want to encourage your kid to uh, to read. And I remember when I read this, I didn't have kids when I read this. And after I've had kids, I did it with both of them. It completely works. It's like a magic trick. He said mm -hmm. the best way to encourage kids to read, sit there. Uh, with your wife in a room quietly with a book <laughs> and just sit there reading. They are fascinated to know how come you're not paying attention to me? How come you're not paying attention to anything else? What is so fascinating about these codes on the page? I want to understand the code. And so then you start teaching them the code and they want to know. You know, it's like if you're if you're standing there on the sidewalk, he gives it an example. He goes, if you're standing on the sidewalk and you're pointing up at the sky and looking up at the sky, everybody on the street is going to look up. What's this guy is stopping right. and looking at? Right. And so he says, very often the you teach children by example and by showing them what where you're putting your focus and how you're speaking to people and how you're not speaking to people. That's what they're going to follow you. They're little imitators, right? And right. It, it's amazing right. that he came which up, is, with which is totally Modian, by the way. Ah, uh, yeah, audience. that, yes, you're true. But but basically, uh, and the only commentator I've read who actually gets this was Alan Bloom. Uh, Alan Bloom, when he was uh, when he was dying, he wrote a, a, a beautiful, beautiful book. Well, he wrote two. He wrote Love and Friendship when he was dying. Mm -hmm. uh, and he also wrote uh, an in-depth, he did a translation into English of Jean-Jacques Rousseau's Emile. And this is the guy who wrote The Closing of the American Mind, right? So uh, he wrote a, a very, very good English translation of Emile, the best one that exists, uh, in my opinion. Um, if you could read it in French, it's much better in French. But if you're going to read an English translation, Bloom's is the absolute, absolute best. And he wrote this very, very long introduction and a, a, an interpretation from a conservative perspective. And it's interesting, uh, a conservative interpretation of Rousseau, and he's, he's very admiring of Rousseau. And he says... Uh, one of the things that Rousseau really gets right is that the way that you teach children is by eliciting their natural curiosity, right? And he, you know, he does that. Right. He does that right. very well, right? But, uh, but what he to use once again to use Boxenhorn terms, Rousseau uses Modian methods to uh, achieve Mundian aims, mm -hmm. right? He's the, the, the other thing that I thought was really interesting. Going way back to the beginning, mm -hmm. so the aristocracy was totally modian, and they taught the kids to be totally modian. Isn't that interesting? That 
the aristocracy keeps this power completely by modian means. Yeah. Like that's what the aristocracy is. They're not, they're not, as opposed to the bourgeoisie, who achieve their power through, at least partly, through Mundian means, by actually producing wealth. Yeah. You know, it's it's funny because David Graeber, you know, it's, uh, who Nassim recommended on Twitter a couple of months ago, or David Graeber's new book, Bullshit Jobs, which is a fantastic book, by the way. I, I tore through that thing in like two days. It's an amazing book. Uh, but it's funny because David Graeber's qu- quite left wing, and yet he and Nassim get along very well. They, they, uh, you know. But Graeber makes the that very point that aristocracy, they ha- elites have maintained themselves through well to use boxing art through Modian means, right? And and he says this is precisely why the the kind of the stereotypical Trump voter has so much resentment towards cultural elites, whereas they don't have very much uh, resentment necessarily towards entrepreneurial elites because they feel like, you know, if I had a good idea and I worked hard and I got lucky, I could be like a millionaire. I could be successful in business. But they recognize, and and such a fascinating point that Graeber makes. I'd never thought about it until I read this book. He says, actually, their resentment towards cultural elites is grounded in a reality. And the reality is that there is no way they could ever be one of those cultural elites. It would require just decades of training and schooling, going to the right schools, learning how to, the equivalent of like, you know, which fork to use for what, you know, dish. Basically, you have to to be born into the right family that you put on that when you're a child. And you have to be able to do like, you have to be able to do five, ten years of unpaid internships in Manhattan when, you know, daddy right. and mommy are paying for your apartment. You, to get certain positions within the cultural establishment, you have to have this huge pedigree, right? Which well, they're first not of all, get... you have to go through 12 years of schooling in the right schools, mm-hmm. the, right, the right kindergartens, and elementary yeah. schools, and high schools. Exactly. So, and it's... And so if you don't have that, if you're in your 20s and you want, you know, you finish high school and say, what am I going to do with my life? That you know, unless you're extremely exceptional, that path is closed to you already. Yeah, and and you know this is something which I mean I'm I'm going to be interviewing uh, the the next guy that I'm actually interviewing for the podcast is a, a really fantastic artist uh, who mm-hmm. he was born in Montreal. We grew up together actually. And he's gone down to New York and become very very successful. He sells sells out shows. He's just he's amazing. I mean, look up his stuff. Sometime Bevan Ramsey, he's absolutely amazing. Uh, but one of the things that he's told me, and I hope he, I hope he won't mind that I'm saying. No, he won't mind that I'm saying this. But he's said that in order, he's actually an amazing artist, and he's part of what makes him an amazing artist is that he's a Mundian. He works with materials. He understands the material world. He sees things very, very clearly. He has a, a phenomenal eye for seeing things as they actually are. Right. Mm-hmm. And uh, but in order to sell art, he realized right. very quickly, you have to be a Modian because most people who have the money to buy art and buy art don't know what they're talking about. Right. Right. And so you have to learn how to sell great art to people who don't know what great art is. Right. I, you know, I come from a family of artists. Oh, wow. OK. And, and I have a lot of artists in my family and uh, I've met a lot of artists. I have never met a single I've met a lot of artists who are successful and unsuccessful, but I've never met a single 
successful artist who is not charismatic. Yeah. Well, Bevan Bevan is an extremely extremely charismatic uh, person. Like okay, very, so he's very lucky. But but yeah. But you know, we associate being a, a visual a visual artist with being charismatic. You, you know, you you all associate have that association. If you're an artist, you're charismatic. It's not true. Not true. So yeah, the I mean, successful artists are charismatic. Yeah, no, that's that's very very true. He's uh, no, he's very charismatic. He was like a bartender, and he was always like the most popular bartender kind of thing. And right, right. you know, that's he's good. he's uh, he's very good looking. He's very very charming. And so basically, <laughs> what he did, and this is, totally fits into your whole idea, is he realized that in order to be a successful artist, you have to play the part of an artist as if you're an actor in a movie playing an artist right and so he is amazing at playing the part he he also actually is an artist right but he's very good at playing the part of an artist and so he dresses like an artist he talks the way people who live completely in in modia think an artist should he's eccentric in all the right ways and and you know i've seen him Uh at shows sometimes i mean and He's like he's sort of putting it on a little bit, you know. Like he's like kind of uh-huh. like he's, and it works. You know, they eat it up. These rich people in Connecticut buy his stuff up. They they love it, you know. They like they completely eat it all up. But I think uh, it's it's like that for a lot of things, you know. I mean, I I tell new professors at my college when they're starting off, if they're really nervous and really insecure, I tell them, uh, you know, well, dress the part. You know, put on like a jacket with like the leather patches on the elbows. <laughs> well, you know, you know, dress the parts. It's true in any profession. Okay. Yeah, know? and I tell them, and they're like, "But that uh, feels false." And I said, "You just finished doing twelve years studying, you know, medieval art history, or you just studied. You actually are the real thing. You're the real thing. You're not a fake. You just don't feel like it. You're feeling insecure." <laughs> So, you know, play the part and then you'll you'll be more comfortable, right? Right. Yeah, no it's Yeah, it, um okay, and another thing and this may sort of uh, do you do you realize the extent to which your whole Modia Mundia uh scheme fits into some very very interesting things that are happening in uh evolutionary biology right now, right? So you've heard I, I imagine you've probably heard of this theory, uh, which is gaining a great deal of traction. The, the theory is that the way that we perceive the world um, has been, it's kind of evolutionary psychology, but it's, it's more than that. It's, it's saying that the way that we perceive the world is limited by what is potentially useful to us or not. Mm-hmm. Are you familiar with this theory? Um, not in particular, but I do... I do think that that we are designed um, for success. And, yes, absolutely. And, and we're designed for evolutionary success. And perceiving things that do not do not lead to evolutionary success, like we're not evolved for, the, for, for perceiving any of that stuff. We're, we're evolved for perceiving the things that do that do um, lead to evolutionary success. Yeah, absolutely. With, this is exactly this is exactly the theory, and it's been tested out uh, with some very kind of ingenious means, right? So what they do is they have these very powerful computers and they have these simulations and they will two, they'll create two completely imaginary organisms 
and you know, let's say they create two things that are like a like a sort of a squiddy octopusy type thing, right? And they'll have one of the organisms will be uh, able to perceive everything in its environment in all of its richness and fullness, right? mm -hmm. whereas the other organism will only be programmed to only perceive things in its environment that are potentially dangerous or useful to it. So something that could be food, uh, could be shelter, could be a mate, could be, uh, or something that could eat you or something that could be, you know, whatever. So, uh, and then they put them in a simulation. And as I'm sure you can uh, anticipate, right, right. every single time they run the simulation, the organism that only perceives things that are of potential benefit or harm to it outperforms and in wins. And the, the simple Obviously. reason is that Obviously. it takes too much time and energy right. to perceive everything. So the organism... Well, you know, yeah. people who perceive too much, what we, you know what we call them? What? People work for it. They're ADD. Yes. Yeah. Right? Yeah. No, that's, ab that's absolutely oh. true. Yeah. And it, especially a particular kind of... A particular condition, which actually my uh, my brother-in-law has, and he he was diagnosed with ADHD when he was young, but uh, eventually they realized that what his ADHD is is exactly what you say. It's a an auditory processing problem, mm -hmm. and and so you can see this if you're at a family gathering with him and you're talking to him, uh, he will start talking really really loud. And he's mm -hmm. like practically like shouting in your face. You know, like when you're talking to like a, a very elderly person and they their ears are not working very well and they talk really loud. And the reason they have mm -hmm. to is because that's the only way they can hear themselves. They hear themselves. Right? And so they went and they thought, well, clearly he's got a hearing problem. So they tested his ears. Ears are completely fine. And so the problem is actually exactly what you're saying. It's that we naturally, without even realizing it, filter out the vast amount of ambient noise right. and ambient right. information, we filter out everything that's unimportant and focus on what's important. Mm -hmm. Well, people with ADHD, right. there's something that is, uh, the filtering mechanism is not working very well, and so they get just completely overwhelmed by all of these sounds and all this information that is not important, right? Which is uh, kind of fascinating. Right. I mean, it's, right. Uh, right. so, but I mean, what you're talking about fits in perfectly with this particular theory, which I, I happen to be very, very partial to. My sort of uh, adaptation of it, which I will freely admit was based on your Mundian uh, Modia scheme, uh, is sort of mixing your your idea with what I've read in, in this evolutionary theory is that I think it's useful to imagine that when you are born, it's as if you uh, you put on these like sort of these goggles, these night vision goggles, these goggles that have been designed by uh, by evolution through natural selection, and these goggles they allow you to see certain features of the landscape which are important for you to see, but there's other features of the landscape that you are not able to see. But the thing is, is because we're intensely social animals, these goggles also make it possible for you to see things that are just collective hallucinations. So, and part of the, I think part of the process of, of philosophy or science or, or intellectual life in general is that 
we sit around with other people who are all wearing these goggles that we have inherited from evolution, and we try and figure out what about the world is real and what is not, right? So if, if we all seem to perceive that there's a rock over there, and we all, we go over and we, we bump our foot on it when we hit it, uh, I mean, this is a rather obvious example, we can conclude, you know what, I don't think the rock is part of the collective hallucination. I think the rock is actually a feature of the real world, right? But if you are seeing a bat, you know, flying around the room, and uh, I'm not seeing the bat, and we ask, like, our seven friends, who we all trust, and they're like, no, I don't see the bat. Well, then you can probably conclude that the bat is not uh, is not a function of the real world. It's something that is a projection of your mind, right? That there's For one reason or another, you're seeing the bat, right? Now, I think what is fascinating to take this idea to the next level, uh, which is why I guess the Modians win so often, is that I think you can look at uh, politics, political movements, ideologies, uh, religions. These are basically systems where a bunch of people get together and start to see the same features of the natural world and the same collective hallucinations. And if you get enough people together and they're seeing the same collective hallucinations, that has very, very real consequences in the real world. Right. So, so right. if you ignore those things, what, what do you think about that adaptation of your idea? Um, oh, well, actually, I'm having a little trouble following it. <laughs> I'm, not, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not so... Everybody see the connection so, so well. Okay, I'll, uh, I'll tell you what I mean. Is that let's say, uh, if for instance, uh, if I I happen to I don't believe in, for instance, I don't believe in the um, the Islamic idea of paradise. I don't believe that that's true, and I don't believe that martyrs go to this paradise and get some sort of a reward or anything like that. So, but the fact that I don't believe that that's true doesn't change the fact that enough people believe that and act on it that I have to take their belief seriously, right? Mm -hmm. Be because they have, they believe this thing. They, and so, right. and it has real, because they sometimes, you know, fly planes into buildings and shit like that, right? Like, so like, or blow themselves up. So I need to take their belief seriously. So for me to say Sam Harris style, uh, that belief is not true, end of story. Uh, like, which is what a kind of a hardcore Mundian would do, right? Uh, well, that's not true. So I don't. Why should I even pay attention to that? Like when you were when you were a little kid and you didn't pick up on all the classroom politics and schoolyard politics, right? Like, uh, you have to take those things seriously because if enough people believe a particular collective hallucination, those beliefs start to have consequences in the real world that are every bit as real as gravity. Does that does that make sense? Uh, uh, I guess it makes sense. It makes <laughs> sense. I just don't, I'm not seeing where you're going with this. But. Well, I'm saying that this is why it's very important to take into account modia, right? Because if if enough people have bought into a particular idea, like it, you call like ah. a, a fashion. Right, if a fashion, because basically one of the things you you say like, so like fashion, the word zeitgeist. zeitgeist. So zeitgeist, if if enough, it's really, it's like it's like everybody just takes it for granted that this is true. Yeah, 
Exactly. Uh, fashions are a good example of that because, like you, like you see an old fashion, you think, "Oh, that's strange looking," and you see a new fashion, like, you know, somebody's pants are falling off, but that's the fashion, <laughs> and it's normal to you. So, what would yeah. you think? What would you, if you had to guess, what are some of the things that we take for granted right now, which you think your guess would be that you know, fifty years from now, hundred years from now, those will be seen as clearly just a function of fashion, of modia. Oh, I have no idea. Just, I, 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 I'm, I'm part of the side guys too. It's not, you know. You're not, out, you're, you're not outside of it enough just, to... Well, maybe I am outside of it a little bit, but I mean, uh, I'm at, but I, I don't know if I, if I would make some predictions right now. Um, I have some predictions about, about what what things um, will be more important in the future? Okay. For instance, I think that that uh, um, family life, having children, will be more important in the future because all these people who have, pursue lifestyles that don't involve having children, they're not going to be in the next generation. <laughs> You know, I, I've mentioned this in class and people just look at me like I have five heads, but it's it's one of those things that's so obvious that it almost is, it's almost like I, I the example I usually give to students is I say, have you ever heard of this uh, really popular sect of Christianity called the Shakers? Shakers. And they yeah. say, no. <laughs> I say, well, it was an incredibly popular movement in the 19th century. Right. And, the, and I said, do you know why you've never heard of them? Because they... One of their doctrines was they didn't have kids. <laughs> they they were celibate and they didn't have children. So surprise, surprise, they're all gone. Right? Like so, uh, they, they adopted children. Adopted a lot of children. In those times, there were a lot of orphans, and they adopted them. Oh, really? Right? I I didn't know that. I thought mainly they yeah. just didn't have they didn't have kids, and so they no, like they weren't against having kids. They were against having sex. Okay. <laughs> Well, clearly at the end, the end result was pretty much the same. Yeah, the uh, I mean, one of the best. If you want to look from a totally cynical, cynical perspective, and uh, and I, I normally don't like to go from that perspective, but it, it, for this discussion, it works. Uh, saying when the Catholic Church came out against birth control and against uh, against abortion, against things like this, from a I realized that they were doing it for a principled reason, right? But from a cynical perspective, that's genius because it means you're going to have more Catholics, right? <laughs> like, you know what I mean? You know, but I don't. Uh, looking out at the actual data, I don't see it. I don't know if it's true. Why? You think that? Well, I don't see that Catholics have more children than, than Protestants. Um, in the United States, I imagine it's probably. Not a huge difference, but the Catholics, I think, would have more than Protestants. But if you look uh, worldwide in terms of the Christian population, the uh, and this is something that uh, somebody brought this up to Sam Harris on his podcast. Which I thought it was a very, very interesting point, and I, I did think his response to it was, was terribly good. But uh, somebody pointed out that if you look within the religious traditions of the world, if you look um, you know, in Judaism and Christianity and Islam— Again and again, you see the same pattern. The people who are most uh, orthodox, people who are most fundamentalist, most most conservative, most have the most kids, 
Right, right. And that's true of all religions. And not so just guess, Catholicism. guess where these religions are going to go in the future. Right. Like, it seems most right. obvious to conclude that uh, in the future there will be, like, uh, if present trends continue, a very significant chunk, for instance, of the Christians in the United States will be um, Amish. You know, will be various kinds of, and a very significant chunk. This is well, already uh, happening. Amish, Amish are very, are very small percentage of the population of the United States right now. They're um, fundamentalist Christians, Protestants, are quite high. So that's, they're, they're starting from a much higher base and yeah. having a lot of children. Yeah. And then within Judaism, if you, uh, I mean, obviously, you, you look it's at... It's so uh, obvious in Judaism. It's completely it's so obvious. obvious. It's completely obvious. Because Judaism, you have, you have two things happening. You have, first of all, the fact that the the Orthodox have way more kids, but you also have the the also the twin thing is that people who are very secular and very sort of um, you know Judaism light as I call it, uh, they tend to sort of marry marry outside the faith and more or less forget about the the whole Judaism thing. So that's those two things happening at the same time would seem to right. indicate that within a generation or two, everybody's going to be orthodox. It, it's not, you're right. I mean, um, I mean, there is some movement back and forth, so I don't expect it to be, it's not that sharp a, a, a trend, but it's a very steep trend. Yes. Very steep trend. Yeah. Um, but uh, I, but I have, yeah. These Jews have, you know, Jew, Jews as a whole um, have a, lower fertility than Americans as a whole. But Orthodox Jews have a much higher fertility. Much higher. Yeah. I mean American they they have like one of the highest fertility yeah. rates in the world at the moment, right? Of any of any group. I yes. think they're really, really yes. high. Yeah. yeah. So that's uh, you know, I mean that's like the what do they call the revenge of the cradle? Like the if you have if you make babies and well it's not it's not enough to just if you want to think about the sort of the continuation of a particular uh, religion or a particular political worldview or anything, a culture, right? There's at least two steps, right? You have to have, have a lot of kids and then you have to raise those kids within that, uh, within that tradition so right. that you're properly, right. you, know, you can't just have the kids and then that's it. But uh, yeah. And so they're definitely Orthodox Jews are doing that very, very well. Right. So that would right. seem to indicate, right. I, I don't know. What I, one thing that I see a lot here in Montreal with the Jewish community in Montreal is that you'll have, I have friends who were brought up uh, very, very secular or very sort of, they didn't, their Judaism was not a, a really big deal. It was kind of, they maybe mm -hmm. go on high holidays and hang out with their grandmother and stuff like that. But uh, who in their 20s really wanted to like get back to their roots and they became, mm -hmm. uh, started to take their Judaism very, very seriously. And now they're, you know, my age, they're in their kind of, we're all in our early forties now and they have kids and they're very, very religious. Right. So mm -hmm. that's, uh, right. that's a, a pattern that I've seen quite a lot of. I don't know if that's just uh, a function of the, the Montreal Jew. I mean, I definitely seen that in New York as well. So is that, is that a pattern that's all over the place or is that? Uh, I think it is a pattern all over the place. I mean, it's, it's probably not unique to Judaism. I mean, I think that there is a conservative trend in the Western world in general. Obviously, not everybody is going down this trend, but there are like um, 
I, I see this like, you know, you think of like religious people as being more conservative than non-religious people. Yeah. I think that part of it is that conservative people are becoming religious. <laughs> not just that they. Oh, that's interesting. That that's interesting. Not just that that the religion itself is more conservative. Wow. So. Yeah, I mean, how does this play out? I mean, you're you're in Israel, like, I mean, how does the? It's really obvious in Israel, really obvious, because, um, because there is no, there is no non-Jewish culture that people are, that Jews Jews melt into, and in Israel, in Israel, the uh, non-religious Jews have a high fertility, like over. 2.5 or something like that. It's like, oh, that's really they, interesting. They, 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 three is the new two for kids. Here in Israel, that's what they're saying. Wow. So like, and it, it's, it's, complete, it's completely like the typical married couple in Israel who is not religious at all and it can be completely like anti-religious. They have three children. Wow. That's just, that's just the norm. Does the government have, I know here in Quebec, uh, to try and... Uh, to try and sort of promote people to to have kids and stuff like that, mm -hmm. um, they give all the the government really really supports you if you want to like you get a, a huge tax bonus if you have a third kid, and they they're trying very hard. And I I actually know people that when they're deciding whether to have a third kid, this was a factor. They decided you know what we'll actually have a third kid because um, it's going to be financially really really. Is going to be great. I mean, they didn't have it just because of that, but when they were deciding whether they could afford it, things like that. Does Israel support families in that way? Not very well. Not very. <laughs> a lot less than a, a well. lot less than a lot less than most of the countries of Europe. Okay. I mean, you do get some support. You do get um, some financial support. Is it like about thirty dollars a month for a child or something like that? Okay. And uh, and. Um, there's about three months of there's three months of maternity leave for one for the mother. And compared to Sweden, for instance, Sweden they don't have any like for the they highest, don't have any for the father. Nope. Really? No maternity. No paternity so leave. To, say, wow. Say Sweden Sweden has the highest fertility in Europe. It's I think barely almost like two two point zero almost replacement but not quite. They have a year of maternity leave for both parents. Yeah. Well, I know, still, and they're still way below, the, you know, the fertility of, of of Israel. That's amazing. Way below. So, why do you think? What is the reason for that? Why Why do you think Israel's so baby crazy? <laughs> why are they well, loving think, on the children so much? I I don't know. I'll, I'll give you a, a a bunch of hypotheses. Okay. Um. Um. Israel is a very baby-friendly country. Okay. Very child-friendly country, not because of government policy. The government policies are like, like on the, you know, maybe a little, maybe better than the United States, maybe, but worse than most industrialized countries. But the culture here, like, like everybody loves kids. Everybody like, like, kids are like, are like, you know, part of the part of the scene here. Like not something that you have to like, like put away when you go to have fun or something. You know, it's not something that gets in the way of of of, of your fun.
they're part of the fun. And like, you know, in Tel Aviv, like Tel Aviv is like the most secular part of Israel, I prefer. Um, you know, if all your friends are, are get, you know, are having three kids, then you can have three kids too and be part of the part of the fun. Yeah, yeah. My a friend of mine yeah. that I work with, she said she was, uh, she went to France she, with her son when he was very young, and then after that she went to hang out with some friends in Israel for a while, and then she came. And I and she said the difference was unbelievable. She goes, uh, you can go into a, a really really nice restaurant in Paris with your dog. And have the dog like sitting on your lap and you're feeding the dog and nobody bats an eyelash. They're completely, it's totally fine. You walk in with your baby, everybody looks at you like you're a total jerk. Like you're ruining our time. People are giving you dirty looks constantly if the kid's making noise. blah blah, blah, And they they expect the kid to be just perfectly quiet and well behaved. And she said then she went to Israel and it was night and day. She goes, you can go into the nicest restaurant and your kid is being a total brat, is like screaming, everything. And everybody is like, oh, like they'll try and help you. The staff will try and help you. Right, Nobody right. look. It's like going into the French restaurant with a dog, <laughs> going in with a baby. And you know, I can't imagine going into a restaurant with, uh, with a dog in Israel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that that's would a, That's a good concept for me. Yeah, so, that's, so it's a baby-friendly environment, right? Right. Baby from the environment, so I think that helps you know mostly. Like, like it's part of the expectation that, that you'll have children, and the children will be part of the scene. Yeah. Um, that's what one thing. I also think that that I mean, Judaism is is I guess like like most religions is very um, um, family friendly. You know, any religion that survived a thousand years has to be family friendly. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I know the and, uh, my uncle lives right by a, a very large Hasidic community in Montreal, and he said, you know, the, the the Hasidic Jews they have basically they've had something like paternity leave for you know for centuries, long before anybody thought about it. And I said, what do you mean? He goes, well, when a man has a has a family, has a young family. There's all these obligations that he's supposed to teach his kid, like Torah and all these. And so he's exempted from all sorts of uh, community obligations that he would normally have when he has a young family. And if he's, you know, in the businesses, they will give them like time off and things like that. That they they just understand that right. you it, your job as a being a your role as a father is very very important, right? And we want you to be involved. And so they mm-hmm. give them which. I, I thought that was fascinating. I've never heard of that yeah. in any other religious tradition. So, I'm not really sure if that has much of an effect in, like, in real life. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it probably has effect in the, in the Hasidic community if they're working for Hasidic employers. Yeah, but um, uh, Israeli Israeli businesses are are more tolerant of family family time than American businesses. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's for everybody, not just, uh, I mean, that's part of this, just the, the zeitgeist here. Uh, so the other thing I was going to say is that, is that, um, I think that Judaism, the Jews, not Judaism, Jews, um, for like the last thousand years or more have always been on the forefront of whatever's going on 
Yeah. And, and like, right now that, you know, for the last two decades, um, the fertility in the West has been like dropping very fast. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that, that that happened for, that happened for Jews, like, 50 years earlier. Okay. Just are, you know, we're on the, on the forefront of that, of whatever, of, of, um, that demographic transition. And, uh, uh, and now I think we're seeing like the rebound. And the rebound comes from like, if so, if, if so many people are not having children, the ones who are left are having children. And they're, they're providing the next generation. Yeah. So. Yeah, well, it's, uh, it's an interesting thing. And I, I, I often will put this, um, this sort of diagram on the blackboard for the students. And I, I'd show like a, you know, a pyramid, which is, I'm sure you've seen this. It's like a sort of intro economics kind of pyramid. And you show a pyramid. And I said, this is how any insurance uh, system works or any social welfare state or any, it, it applies to very, very many things. You have a lot of people putting into a particular system, and then you have a smaller percentage, the people at the top of the pyramid, who are taking out of the system. And this would be children, old people, disabled people, prisoners, um, you know, unemployed. It's all different things. And those children are people at the bottom, by the way. Uh, they would, they would be like taking out of the system, and then you have all these people putting into the system. And right. I said you have to have a regular stream of people entering the bottom where they're putting a great deal into the system and not taking out very much. If you have an aging population and you're not having kids anymore, then you're going to get more and more people at the top of the pyramid uh, who are non-productive members of society. And that starts to weigh down very heavily on the people who are productive members of society. And eventually, uh, if the if the triangle inverts and flips that's when a society collapse that's that's when an insurance system anything that's when it collapses when the the premiums become too high the taxes become too high the basically the whole system collapses so said so in a in a society like ours we we have to replace ourselves uh, through natural increase through having babies if we don't do that then we have to replace it through by immigration by kind of uh, uh, inviting immigrants to come into our society and, and integrating them properly. There's no third way. <laughs> like, you have to well, you you have to do one or the other. Look, for, for most of human history, populations have been stable, not increasing. So, and and there were no welfare systems in those days, and people people did support themselves. Well, how did they do that? The children worked. Old people worked. You worked from the time you were born. Until the time you died, basically. Mm -hmm. But I mean, the populations were stable in large part because there were regular diebacks, you know, like massive. I mean, I, I was quite surprised when I was um, reading, it was Charles C. Mann's book, uh, which one was it? The Wizard and the Prophet. And he talks about, also Yuval Harari in his book, um, uh, Sapiens, he talks about this a great deal as well, a uh, fellow Israeli. Uh, he talks about how many famines happened. And, you know, I'd, I'd heard of some of them, you know, sort of the greatest hits. But when he lays them out, just 
page after page after page of all these massive famines that killed off mm-hmm. uh, you know it, and this is not very long ago like you know three four hundred years ago it was a regular occurrence for right. a famine to happen in a place like Finland and wipe out one third of the population right, right? France right. had uh, famines that would wipe out twenty five percent of the population on a regular basis mm-hmm. right so I mean the the way that the populations were stable was through rather brutal means. <laughs> no, well, no, but but even even what you're talking about is, is famines happen when the when the food supply you know shrinks. But but um, at no time did you have a situation where uh, a large part of the population was doing nothing and just being taken care of by the other the other part of the population. Everybody did as much as they could, whatever whatever amount that was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I read a book recently about um, Abraham Lincoln, and he says at one point that his first memory is walking behind his father, planting seeds. His father was, was, was hoeing, and he was walking behind at, th- at the age of three. Oh, that's so, so, three so Abraham cute. Lincoln was already contributing to the, to the you know, what he could to the family. That's amazing. And he didn't stop. You know, whatever whatever child can do, and child children can do a lot. You know, they can contribute. Yeah. And he certainly didn't stop. He didn't go on, on, on you know on pension at sixty five and just stop doing anything. <laughs> That's so. true. It's it's uh, you know I mean obviously I think child labor laws were instituted for a very, very good reason. I think, you know... I, I'm, I'm not recommending going back to that. Yeah, I'm no, no, I know you're not. I know you're not. It's just, I, I remember when I was uh, when I was a kid in the, the 1980s, I remember getting my first paper route and I felt so, I felt so good that I could like go and deliver these papers and I would make money and I had like my, my money and I, I just, I thought this was absolutely fantastic and I, I had a couple of different paper routes. There are no more paper routes, right? They are because yeah. everybody's afraid of their kid being like abducted and uh, you know uh-huh. abused or uh-huh. something like that. So right. there's no paper routes. They're all done by adults driving around in vans now. Uh-huh. And uh, and then I I got a job. I was working at a grocery store and I was a bagger and then I was a cashier and I I, I had all these like little odd jobs when I was from mm-hmm. the age of about I guess like 11 years old mm-hmm. uh, until I moved out. And so I, I remember how incredibly rewarding that was to me. And I felt like it taught me a lot of good lessons and things like that. So I wanted my sons to have the same experience. And I found out that when my son Tristan was the you know 11 years old, that he was not allowed to work anywhere. They were like, he wasn't allowed. So what I finally had to do was I went to uh, some friends of mine and they they own a business. I'm not going to name the business, but uh, they own a business in the neighborhood. And I I've known them since I was a kid. And I said, look, I really want uh, I really want my my kid to have like an experience of working and stuff like that and having. And um, I know you're not allowed to hire him, but it this is so valuable to me that um, I will pay him like a certain amount per hour. You know, like I think it was like I don't know three or four bucks an hour or something like that. I'll pay him three or four bucks an hour, and you let him work for you, and we're gonna say that it's just volunteer work. 
right? So he's just volunteering and he's just helping you. So you're not breaking any laws or anything like that. And uh, and so he di- he did that for years. And as as soon as he became old enough, they uh, hired him legally right away. Uh-huh. Uh, and they they actually already like a few years ago said, you know, he's he's as good or better than most of our paid employees. <laughs> you know? uh-huh. But I can see how much satisfaction it gave him to be sort of making his own money and working and being useful, uh-huh. right? Because, I mean, that's what uh, you see a lot of these sort of suburban kids in pretty, you know, pretty well-off circumstances. They look miserable because they're infantilized. You know, they're like 17, 18 years old, and they're still being driven around like in an SUV to go to their this and that. And they're very infantilized for a long time. It's it's sad. Does that happen in Israel as well, or is that... Well, you know, um, Israeli kids in some ways are spoiled more than American kids, and in other ways are spoiled a lot less. Okay, what, what's the way? What's uh, the less? Well, Israeli kids are much more independent than American kids. Okay. I never drove my kids like around to do things. They just like went off and did their things. Nice. And. Um, and there was like a, a local youth group that they would go to, and that was a very big part. The youth groups are self-organized; like they have counselors who are just a little bit older than they are, who are like sixteen years old, you know, fifteen, sixteen years old. Mm-hmm. And and the whole thing is organized; they self-organized, and they're part of it. And. But you know, there's another way that it's just that kids are like more of a part of society. Like I feel like, like, like um, it's much more common to see kids of different ages playing with each other, and or kids being part of like whatever the family is doing. Um, it, it's um, you know the thing the thing that like the only way to be happy. There's only one thing that makes you happy, and that's if you have feel like your life is meaningful. You're doing something meaningful. Yeah, I think this is Victor Frankl's. Um, sure. Yeah. Man's search for meaning. So, yeah. So there are, like, there, are, there are a lot of things that that can give meaning to your life, but what they all have in common is that they're larger than yourself. That, and you know, there's something like, you know, you're doing something for somebody else or for some cause or for some. It's they're outside yourself, and you can't do any of those things if your mother is driving you around. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know one thing, you're not. It's, I mean, your mother can drive you around, but it's not if if, if your life's like if your life is directed by your mother and by other people and by you're just like like you have no autonomy. Then how can you be doing anything meaningful? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I remember when when Tristan and Andy were very young. When our kids were young, we lived for uh, for a, a month. Well, on two different occasions, we lived in in Amsterdam for uh, for a while, and then we uh, we spent a lot of time in Paris as well. And it was it was very interesting because yeah, I, I love Paris, so I don't want, I don't want to sound like I'm ragging on Paris because I actually love Paris very very much. But Paris has some interesting properties that make it almost like the polar opposite of, of Israel in the way you're describing it. 
Uh, Paris has the highest percentage of people who live alone of any wow. large city in the world. So a lot of people live alone. Uh, a lot of people are, are single. A lot of people don't have kids. Uh, and so it's a, it's, a very, uh, it's a very sort of adult, single world, right? So when you go there with a double stroller and two kids like we did, you just feel like an alien. I mean, you feel like yeah. like the strange like there's there's never any place to go and change a diaper. There's never like, uh -huh. and you just feel like like you're uh, you get on a bus with like these these kids, and it's like you're getting on the bus with like your pet boa constrictor, and it's like wrapped around your neck, <laughs> and people are looking at you like, wow, that's that's a weird thing to bring on the bus, you know? It's like a little kid, right? So it's uh, yeah, it's not very it's not very kid friendly, and I I think. You know, you look at what's going on with French. There's been a, a very significant exodus of kind of middle class professionals and entrepreneurs in France. There's been a significant exodus, and they're moving to Quebec, and most of them are moving to Montreal. There's actually in in my neighborhood uh, here in in Plata Montreal, there's entire streets that are practically all uh, transplanted. Uh, people from France, like people, and wow. they, they almost all say the same thing. They say, you know, we were just leaving a sinking ship. You know, it's just wow. completely, they said it's, it's, uh, if you're trying to build something, if you're trying to build a business, if you're trying to have a family, have some kids, if you're trying to build anything, it's not a congenial environment at all. Like you just, on, on every turn, you're finding, uh, you're being blocked, right? And so they're, and they run into the problem where they have all of these uh, they have all of these like people who were brought in from from North Africa for building projects and things like that the vast majority of them are there because the French government actively um, asked them to come they needed them for various kinds of projects but they're not for various reasons they're not properly integrated into French society. They're totally shut sure. out of the unions and things like that, mm -hmm. and, which yeah. are, you know, basically like protection rackets and are passed down from father to son, wow. mother to daughter, like an aristocratic title. So you have these people who are shut out of the most of the professions, most of the trades and things like that. And they're the people that are having lots of kids in France. Right. So it's just creating all of these very bad, bad tensions within France. It's like and I, and I wonder, do you think that's to some extent a metaphor for Europe in general? I guess because that seems to be a pattern that's reproducing itself in a lot of Europe. Where... Well, I, I think that's it's, it's, a, it's true of the entire Western world, in fact, the entire westernized world, including Japan and Korea and Taiwan. Um, I think it's probably just a human characteristic that, 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 you know, we used to have children because, uh, because we didn't know how to stop having children. We didn't have <laughs> contraception. <laughs> or because they were useful to us on the farm. Or because they took care of us in our old age. And none of those things are true today. None of those reasons for having children are true today, and so it's a natural. You know, every every country, including Israel, by the way, every country has gone through this demographic transition. That when they reach a certain 
level of economic development, the population growth falls dramatically, and it falls usually to below replacement rate. And all countries, all rich countries in the world today, and a few countries that are not very rich, like Iran and Indonesia, have below replacement rate of um, fertility. Huh. And it's going to have a huge impact on the world. My children, in their lifetime, they're going to see a world that's very different from the one that we're living in now. Because, you know, this is, some, this is something that, that will not continue. Or will continue, but will have, like the world won't continue the way, the way that it is now, you know, when this is happening. Yeah. Um, and there are other countries like, like, like Nigeria, like it's on target to have like a billion people, wow. like in the next fifty. And that's I don't know if that is that going to happen. Can that happen? Is, is there is somebody going to stop it? You know, or there are a few countries that have super high fertility. So Yemen is like like seven fertility, seven kids for a woman. That's wild. Like, what's going to happen there? Like, when, you know, Saudi Arabia, the fertility is dropping, like, dropping fast. And next to it is Yemen, which is a very large country in population that's still growing very fast. What's going to happen? What's, what's that going to do? Wow. And now, we have, and we ha then we have Israel, and maybe other countries are going to come up soon, that have, are on the other side of the demographic transition. And now growing, and now that fertility rate is increasing. So that, you know, I think that the process that Israel went through, like every country is going to is is on track for that because at some point, the only people you have left will be children of of, you know, I don't know, people who want who want who want more children. About that part of that is part of their cultural expectation. Yeah. What's, I'm just wondering, I mean, if I, growing up in Canada, I know in terms of like my perception of politics and, and all different things that if I left, I mean, Quebec is a, a very, very distinct society and it, it feels very much like a different country from the rest of Canada. But if I were to drive um, out of Quebec into what we call here sort of, you know, English Canada, into English Canada, um, I would find that people were mostly, mostly, you know, there's a lot of similarities to the way people live in Montreal, people live in Quebec. It's in a different language, but there's a similar uh, political structure. There's similar things like that. And then if you drive down south to the United States, uh, you would find pretty much a, a very similar society in many, many ways. And so mm -hmm. I wonder, what's it like being in a place like Israel where you, because Israel looks to me that it has, in all of the sort of reliable ways, it has a lot of the features, has regular democratic elections, you have a free press, you have universities where professors can say what they want, and uh, you can have somebody like, you know, one of my, uh, who I, you know, I like very much, Yuval uh, Noah Harari, who's a fantastic intellectual who's openly gay and is married to a guy. You have gay pride parades. You have you have all these like features that look to me like like home, but you're in the middle of uh, an area where 
if you drive out of Israel, you're going into into countries that are vastly different, where things are not at all uh, governed by the usual ideas of the the West. I mean, what what is that like? I mean, does that put a lot of stress well, on those values or on those? No, not at all. Those values are are well integrated into Israeli culture. Um, but I do think that uh, Israel should not, it's correct to not to classify Israel as being different from the West. Like Israel should be put into a category with Taiwan and Japan and Korea and India, like as non-Western country that has enlightenment values. You know, the West didn't have enlightenment values a few hundred years ago. So enlightenment values are new to the West as well. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Jews, you know, went through the same process at the same time of a, pretty much as, of a embracing enlightenment values. But they didn't become Christians. They, they, they stayed Jewish. Yeah. And you probably don't, I don't, I would not call a country um, Western unless it's had a Christian past because you don't, like, you don't realize the ways that that Christianity um, uh, influences your, your, your worldview, even if you're not Christian, just because mm -hmm. that's part of your, your, your historic background. Okay, this is that, uh, that's a very, very important point that way too many people miss. Can you just sort of, what are a couple of ways in which Christianity shapes your worldview, which you would say Israel doesn't have that because it's Jewish? Well, um, Judaism doesn't have a, a concept of sin the way Christianity has. Uh, I remember, uh, like, well, many years ago, uh, reading something to an Israeli, it was like, this chocolate is simply delicious. <laughs> and this is what, and this is what I was talking about. Like, what does that mean? Is that good or bad? Does it taste good or does it taste bad? Like, I, that that concept of um, you know the 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 um, spiritual versus the material where the material is bad and the spiritual is good that doesn't exist in Judaism and the concept of of a um, Satan of the, like embodied Satan that's trying to um, that's trying to to, to, to to attract you to do sin, it also not doesn't exist in Judaism. I mean, there's a concept that sin, sin is attractive and that that um, you have a simple tendencies that are that will that will try to attract you and fool you, but not that this like this like very um, um, I don't know graphic note I, idea of Satan that's like trying to tempt you. Okay. So anything? Anything else? Anything else? For, um, anything else? Oh gosh. Because uh, one thing that's always struck me as being very something that's missed often from people who are kind of not inside the system is that with Christianity you have this this basic notion of universalism, right? Mm -hmm. Christianity sort of. Uh, I mean, this is to some extent a simplification, but. Christianity was uh, a 
a flavor of messianic Judaism that was sort of meshed together with the Roman kind of universalism, and you create this uh, this create, and so there's this idea that we are all one, or we should be, right? That we are all like one kind of super super group, and that that's the right, goal. And of right. course, of course, Islam. Um, inherits that idea from Christianity, and so both Christianity and uh, Judea and, and Islam are inherently uh, imperialistic. You might say, like they they right. both they right. both inherently want to be everybody. They inherently want to right. be like, right. and they believe that the the world will be best. I mean, this is Jesus says at the at the end of. Uh, at the end of Mark's gospel, he says, you know, go, go out into all the world and preach the gospel to all the nations. And so the, the idea that you're supposed to go and convert everybody to the religion and that once everybody is Christian or everybody is Muslim, then that, you know, great things are going to. And so I think the West has, you can see it in, in various kind of activism right. and human rights. They've inherited that sort of missionary zeal. Right and the the, to right. the the totalizing vision, right? That we should have, uh, if we have like the United Nations, or if we have you know what, if we have some sort of global government, or if we all can get on the same page, you know, John Lennon imagine style, right? If we can get on right, the same right, page, right. that this is going to be a wonderful thing. Which it seems to me, Israel isn't on that page. <laughs> right, right. Well, Judaism is not on that page. Judaism yeah. does have a universal. Um, there is a universalism within Judaism, but it's not like Christianity or Islam. Um, it's not the... There are two things here. One is this, is like this transnationalism within Christianity and Islam that Judaism does not have. Judaism like, sees people as belonging to nations. Like, there's nobody in the Bible who is not a part of a nation, even if it's not a Jewish nation. And yeah. that's okay. That's okay. Um, uh, and uh, the other ha the other half of that is that um, is that Judaism doesn't doesn't feel that everybody um, that that everybody should be Jewish. Yeah. Like there's a um, you know the Bible says. That Jews should be a, um, a, kingdom of, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Like that's our our role. But um, we also believe that the righteous of all nations will inherit the next world, or have a portion in the next world. So it's like not that like that other nations can have their jobs as well. And there's nothing in Judaism that says that other that that. that um, that uh, other people, other nations have to keep kosher or have to keep Shabbat or any of the things that 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 that, um, that, uh, um, that, are, that Jews have to do. It's not even actually if you yeah. read if you read the Torah uh, carefully, it's not even monotheistic in the way that Islam and Christianity are. Islam and Christianity say God, you know, is the only God, right? Like, there's sort of God is is the only one, right? At Judaism, if you look in the Torah, it if you read carefully, it says uh, 
I am the no I am the only God for the Jews. You know, Yahweh says like I am I am you know hero Israel the Lord your God is one. I am a jealous God. Do not go far. So he doesn't say other gods don't exist. He says uh, he, he's sort of like a uh, what would you call it? <laughs> yes, like um, he believes that he should be the absolutely the only God for the Jews. He, he's not saying there can be other gods for other people. That's you know that's their business. Well, that's a that's a, a kind of a, a modern look at at, at the Bible you know, within Jewish tradition. Like we don't see, we don't we don't read the Bible that way. Like you may maybe like historically you could say that that's the way the original the Jews originally thought of of God, but certainly by the time of the Talmud and the Judaism that we all that all Jews have inherited has this idea of of a one God who is, you know, has such a oneness that, that you can't conceive of how one, how oneness, how, how one is like, my mommy said, it's, it's one, it's not like one of two, one of a pair, it's not like one of a kind, it's not like all these things, not a one that can be divided into other into pieces, it's, you know, it's some kind of oneness that's beyond our conception of oneness. Yeah. And what? that's that's my mind. That's he's you know a thousand years ago, and he was taught, and he was he was recording a, an existing Jewish tradition that he thought was like the original Jewish the original Jewish tradition. Yeah. Uh, but but the kind of equivalent of this, but the kind of equivalent of of paganism, you know, pagans are are are, are kind of um, uh, tolerant because like. You know, I have my gods. You have your gods. It, yeah. You know, that's that's fine. Um, the Jewish equivalent is that is that I have my tribe. You have your tribe. I have my nation. You have your nation. And um, some years ago, I went to visit um, uh, Taos Pueblo in New Mexico, and I was talking to this like young Indian. I was a young man at the time, and I was talking to this other young man my age. And it was just seemed like like we like like we we understood each other. Like he had his tribe, he was an, you know, an Indian, he was Indian, I was a Jew, Jew, and he had his, his like clothes, I had my clothes, you know, it was like um you know, it was okay, like we accepted each other that way. Uh-huh. Uh so uh, I guess we have like the um Sociological, sociological uh, equivalent of of you know pagan tolerance. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. It's um, I don't know, but my impression I, I I totally take your point about by the time of the the Talmud and this had changed and they had gone into being a, a more standard issue monotheistic kind of religion. But my impression from reading the reading the the first books of, of the Bible, the, the Torah, that the impression I get is that this was originally much more of, a, I don't know if I'd say pagan exactly, but in the same way that every other place in the Mediterranean world, they would say, okay, let's say Zeus is, is our city god or Poseidon is our God, and that didn't that didn't mean there were no other gods. It meant that's the god of this city. That's the god of my people, and we 
pay special to Athena or to, and so the the Jews had their particular god that they paid special homage to, and that they didn't necessarily begrudge other people having their gods. It's just this is this is ours, right? Like sort of like I. This is a very perhaps bad analogy, but uh, if you are, let's say, a Montreal Canadiens fan or a Boston Red Sox fan, you're not saying that there's not other teams and people can't be fans of other teams, but because of who you are and where you live and your commitments and where you're, you are a Red Sox fan, right? You are a Giants fan. That's uh, And so I think religion's probably at, if we go f- back far enough, we're similar to being a a sort of a diehard crazy Red Sox fan, right? But then what happens is with the universalism of the Roman Empire, suddenly Christianity comes up with this new idea, which is that we have to be not just the religion of the Romans, we have to be the religion of everybody, and everybody has to sign on this dotted line, right? And it becomes a totalized, and then Islam uh, inherits that, I would say, largely toxic idea. Right? Well, I think that the idea of a universal God predates Christianity. Yes, yes. I mean, and combined with the political the very, project. Even, even at the very beginning, there was always this like notion of our God is the most powerful God. <laughs> yeah. Our God is the God of all the other gods. My God can beat we, you, kick we, your God's we, ass. We, yeah. Well, no, it's not just that. It's not that, that we're have we worship the God of gods. Yeah, Lord of and Lord, King of Kings. Gods, yeah, the other gods, you know, Zeus and Athena. These are gods that exist within the world. Right? They live on Mount Olympus. They, you know, they may not be subject to, the, to all the laws of nature that we humans are subject to, but like they're they're like these very powerful beings. But they're still beings in the world. Mm-hmm. Well, our God is not in the world. Our gods outside the world. Yeah, it's the the so Olympian gods versus the cosmic gods. Basically, that was in Greek mythology. That's the the differentiation, right? The you have like Zeus and Poseidon. Those are the Olympian gods, and they're basically mm-hmm. sort of superhumans, basically like superheroes, right? right. right? Or supervillains. Right, right. And then you have the cosmic right. gods that are a step above that, and they are they are their relationship to the Olympian gods is somewhat analogous to the Olympian gods' relationship to us, right? And then, so, yeah, yeah, so... I, I didn't even... Who are, the, 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 who are these gods? The cosmic gods are the titans, the things like that, and the Olympians were right, descendants and had, like, a, a rebellion against, but they're always much less powerful. They've just managed to uh-huh. sort of tie them up in some way, right? So they, wow. But, yeah, so that, that was the, the argument that they were... Say, my God is the God of gods. and Well, you see that when that episode when Pharaoh brings his magicians, right, to have, right. And, and, and they do like a, like a magician's like war, right? Like, and right. it's very interesting to note that in that, that confrontation, the Pharaoh's magicians, uh, they actually have powers. Right. You know, they're right. not like total charlatans. They actually do have powers, but they're not as strong right. as... The powers that uh, that the Jews have, the Israelis, they they don't they don't have the same. The children of Israel have better powers, right? <laughs> like, right, so. right, right. Yeah, but also prophecy. I mean, just two weeks ago, we read the the Torah portion of of Yeram, 
know, Bilam is the, the, the non-Jewish prophet. Mm-hmm. Um, that is that called on to curse the Jews, and of course he ends up blessing the Jews instead. But that's the whole story. But uh, but we recognize that other that, that non-Jews can have prophets as well. Yeah, that's that's an amazing that's an amazing idea. I mean, just I don't think there's a lot of parallels in other traditions to that. But uh, yeah, but well, not in Christian. Yeah, not in non Christianity uh, very much. There's not you know, but uh, how does this sort of conservative turn this right word turn that we're talking about and people becoming more religious and, and all that stuff how does that complicate or does it complicate um israeli democracy because you have you have a democracy which is you know based on certain ideas on on free elections on all these and what happens when you inject a whole lot of uh conservatism and religiosity into that does it does it hum along smoothly, or do you have the problems that people seem to be having in the United States, for instance? Well, you know, politics never hums along smoothly. <laughs> so, but Israel, I, Israel has the kind of really, really democratic system that a lot of people in Canada and the States say they want, right? I don't know if you'd be careful what right. you wish for, but... Well, I think it's a good thing, but it's more it's certainly much... More complicated. It makes things more complicated than, than a two-party system. Um, I think it's better because because it gives political expression to more kinds of people. And a governing coalition is a coalition between many groups of different groups of people that can be very very different from each other. The only thing they just agreed to sit together in a government. They've like come some kind of compromise to each other so that with each other so that they can form a majority. Mm-hmm. But you get to actually vote. In a system like Israel, uh, you, it seems like you get to actually vote your preferences rather than That's always right. having right. to hold your nose and vote for somebody right. you don't like because it's better than the other guy or the other woman. You know, That's whatever. right. That's right. Exactly. In, a, in the Israeli system, Trump would have started his own party. He wouldn't have come up through the Republicans. He would have just started his own party, and he would have attracted however many people he attracted. And he would have been part of the government. I don't know if he would be the head of the government, <laughs> the prime minister, or, but yeah. but he would definitely have, with an equivalent amount of support. You know, let's say he's had the equivalent amount of support that he had within the Republican Party. He would have gotten a, a very significant, you know, uh, he would have been a significant party in the election in the elections, and he would have been part of the next government, but not the not the the owner of the entire system. Yeah, he would have he would not have gotten a majority. He would have gotten I don't know what have he gotten twenty percent. 30% or whatever it was that, that he got wouldn't be enough to, to be the sole uh, uh, the, 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 the sole power in the government yeah um, so I, I think it's, I think it's, it's a better system but it's really not more com- more complex because you know you have all these different parties pulling in different directions both during the during the elections and during the government, you know, during the running of the government. Uh, but as far as religions go, I don't really see, um, I don't see where it interferes with democracy, like as in the sense of, of becoming less democratic. Yeah. Well, I uh, guess it's just because uh, the common thing is that 
uh, in the West, the especially the sort of Anglo-American model, is that you want to have uh, you want to have like constitutional democracy. So you want to have uh, the the people decide sort of certain things, and you you have to sort of govern by uh, the will of the people. But also, we enshrine all of these special rights where we say mm -hmm. that there's things that the majority are not allowed to do. So the majority, mm -hmm. we, we place limits on the rights mm -hmm. of majorities. So we say that uh, minority groups, whether, whether they be religious minorities, ethnic minorities, racial minorities, even the rich are actually a minority, right? So the rich are always a minority. So you, you don't want to have the majority, you don't want to give them the power to say, okay, let's pass a law tomorrow where we just take the rights away from this minority, or we just take all their money and like share it amongst ourselves. So you place limits on that. Uh, and that's, that's, so I think one of the great strengths of, of the Western democracies is having that kind of constitutional democracy. The, what people often say is, is dangerous about the rise of, of the right and of religious conservatives is that they fundamentally don't agree with those limitations on the rights of of the majority so they feel like if we get elected we should be able to actually limit the uh, the rights of individuals and of various minority groups we should be able to do that right so i'm just wondering uh, I, yeah i actually don't even see that happening in the in the united states I mean, really i mean i'm not familiar with Canadian politics but american u.s politics I don't see that religious people are less uh, inclined to to uh, to adhere to the constitution than than other people. I mean, I think nobody is inclined to adhere to the constitution. Everybody wants to compromise the constitution when it's their favorite issue. Yeah. Well, I just That's, I have a lot of very very deeply religious uh, family members uh, in the United States, and I know for talking to them and talking to their friends and living down there for there's I have met a lot. Of very very religious people who would like uh, to have Christianity be made like the official. Uh, they would like to bring back Christian prayer in schools. They would like they would like to do a lot of things that um, that I imagine minority religious groups and and you know mm -hmm. atheists and Jews and Muslims and you know Buddhists and Hindus would not be comfortable with. And they would like uh -huh. to. And their feeling is uh, we are the majority. We have the right to impose our our will right that and they they see it as uh, as part of like a and so they're i'm wondering if if there's something similar happening uh, in israel with um, kind of religious political political groups in israel do they also want to sort of maybe make it limit the right of uh, yuval noah harari to marry his his boyfriend and to live you know how he wants to live, right? Um, maybe, but in Israel, what's happened? What the way the way those problems are addressed is that is that all these different groups actually have their own institutions. That you know, in, in Israel, the parties actually predate the state, and originally, that during Turkish times, like the Turkish government. Was like non-existent, like in terms of like, you know, social welfare, the things that you think of, of governments doing nowadays. 
they didn't do you know no education, no so, no social welfare, no. If you want to start a new town, they wouldn't. There was nothing that they would do, and all these different Jewish groups got together to provide these services. And they had their educational systems, and they had their military organizations. Because this is like a libertarian time. dream. <laughs> Just self-organizing. It, it was yeah. in a kind of way, yeah. except that, that the Turks were also very um, unfriendly. Okay. <laughs> I'll put it that way. Yeah. The reason, why, the reason why these groups had their own military organizations is, is to protect themselves from bandits because the, the government wasn't doing that. Mm-hmm. So, the, um, so in the first Knesset, the first, when, it, when Israel became a state, the original parties that were that were represented in the Knesset were these these groups. So Mapai was one of them, Mapam and Mahdav and you know, oh. oh I can't hear you all of a sudden. That's uh... um, Oh, you're back, you're back. You're uh, back. Yeah, you're back. All good. Because I because I put this up like this. Oh okay. No, I don't know, but whatever, it's, good? it's all good. No, you can put it down. It's all oh, good. Okay. So you were saying, so they okay. they sort of spontaneously organized themselves before the well, state. Yeah. I don't know if it's spontaneous because people actually worked hard to. to or organically, let's say, right? So organically, right? Yeah. And and they, they each one had a different philosophy. There were religious ones. There were social socialists. There were socialist religious. There was a, you know, all. Um, and. And so the original parties in the Knesset, in the first Knesset, were, were these these groups. And over time, there's been this like, you know, they merged, there new ones came along. They, you know, this, the parties now are not like none of those original parties are left, except for um, no, actually none of them. None of them are, 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 are. I think none of them are, are still around. But there are other parties, and and there was always this tradition that um, there. are Lots of educational systems in Israel. Like there's not just one, and and uh, each one has a different flavor, a different, you know, more religious, less religious, more nationalist, less religious, you know, more. And that's just the way it is. You know, there's not. Um, I don't think that like even like at some point in time, like there's going to be. A religious Jewish majority in, in Israel at some point in the future. I don't expect it to, that system to change when that happens. I don't expect that, you know, that 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 um, the, the religious majority is going to try to try to you know, impose, impose its will on everybody else. It, yeah. Well, it, it it probably will try to impose its will on everybody else, just the way the secular majority is imposing its will now. But not to an, ex- to, to an extreme extent of like, you know, taking over everything. Yeah. And uh, it's got to be a gradual con- transition because you know populations ch- change gradually, and a lot of changes have to have to happen during that in that time. Um, and I think I expect it to happen. I expect it to happen. Yeah. But you, yeah, m- maybe because there's not that sort of. Uh, totalizing tradition that you have within Christianity and Islam, maybe it's it's a different thing for uh, for religious conservatives within the Jewish. Maybe they don't have that 
that tendency as strong to try and like take over and because I mean you look at the places where uh, Christianity took over in the let's say first fifteen hundred years after after it came on the scene they very very frequently kicked everybody else out <laughs> and became like the dominant you had to convert or, or get out I mean there were some areas where there was tolerance but uh, and then Islam as well and there's some places where there was pluralism but there was usually this kind of totalizing vision that we want to kind of take over, right? And that maybe that's maybe that tradition is just not there and within Judaism. But but well, I don't know. If it's, I, I don't know. I, I I mean, the tradition is not there in the sense of historically. But I I, I don't know if the, I think the impulse to impose your um, your own beliefs on everybody else is pretty universal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. So speaking of uh, imposing other beliefs on, uh, why do you, I mean, we, you and I have been talking about this for a very long time online, but why do you think uh, Western countries are so obsessed with Israel and Israeli politics? Because, you know, I, I have friends who live in a lot of different countries, and I know that there's many places in the world right now where there's disputes between ethnic groups where there's like you know wars happening, border conflicts mm-hmm. happening. I mean, a lot of them really intense, you know, very right. very nobody, intense, and those are never history. on. Those are almost <laughs> never on the front page of my newspaper. But I see Israel on front page of it all the time. So what is going on in your opinion? Well, obviously, part of it it has to do with the the. the you know, Judaism is part of the Christian religion. Like Jews have, have like there's a concept of a Jew within Christianity, and like when I'm in America and I, like, I deal with this all, like all the time, like oh, especially with the place where some place where there aren't very many Jews, like outside of New York City, like oh, you're Jewish, you believe this, you believe that, like you know, show me the show me like how you pray, how you, you know, <laughs> how do you <laughs> Roll like, over. <laughs> well, I, it's kind of I, I, you know, within in America at least, I'm usually like, gives me like, I, I mean, like I usually feel privileged by these Christians, like, oh, like, you know, you're you're Jewish, you're somebody special, and I'm really curious about you in all kinds of ways. Yeah. Um, some some of it's hostile, of course, but but. Um, so it's kind, of, it's kind of a funny feeling, like feeling like, like I am like a character in somebody else's story. Yeah, like a, <laughs> an oddity, or yeah. So, well, it's, I'm not just an oddity. I'm an oddity that has significance to that other person, yeah. like yeah. in ways that uh, in ways that are not significant to me at all. Yeah. So that's uh, that's probably part of it. But I think the main thing actually is just real politics. There are 54. Muslim countries in the world, and they all care about Israel, and they make sure that it's always on the top of the agenda, all the time. And that's where that's where it comes from. You know, there aren't 54 countries. It's, you know, a third of the world's countries do not care about the conflict between the Sinhalese and the Dravidians in Sri Lanka. Mm-hmm. Like it's not true. You know, nobody cares about that except for the people who are living there. Yeah. So, you know, the Muslim countries for their, you know, 
none of the none of the Muslim countries are strong democracies. Few of them are borderline democracies. None of them are strong democracies. All of them, um, you know, use Jews the way that that that, that Jews, Jews have been traditionally used as as a, you know as a rallying cry. You know, someplace you know as an as they need to they need us to to, to, to be their their enemy artificially. Yeah. Well, it's 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 sort of like having. Um, this is such a central feature of human psychology, and it, it it sort of scales up to sociology a great deal. It's it's a central feature of of Modia actually, but it's that the having a scapegoat, having somebody or something that you can blame for everything that's wrong with your life, right? Whether it be your mother, whether it be capitalism, whether it be patriarchy, whether it be feminism, whether it be... And so I think sort of Jews and Israel, from my perspective, it seems like in a lot of people's world, Jews slash Israel are serving that function. So you can explain well, everything yes, that's wrong with your life, you know. Right, but there's actually a stronger function than scapegoat. There's a function of an enemy. An enemy, you know... When a country has an enemy, that's a very big uniting factor. You know, yes. When, when, when the United States was at war, you know, it, unless it becomes disuniting, because like, you know, but it's, it's yeah. <laughs> oh, the Cold War was war. great for was great for unity. You know, the Cold War was great for unity. Yeah. Or World War Two was much better. You know, yeah. And and ironically, this had the function in Israel. Like, you know, I think that that. That um, we've been very blessed with our enemies here in Israel. Like we haven't. <laughs> How so? <laughs> well, because it really has has it really is a uniting factor, and it it does like you know there's a real spirit of of, of camaraderie here. Yeah. I mean, there's a spirit of camaraderie because we're all Jewish, because of Judaism, because of. You know, I think there would be a spirit of camaraderie without our enemies. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, there's a spirit of camaraderie like if you're a, a, a Hasid in New York, too. If you're a but, uh, but the fact that we have enemies actually means that we have to, it's, it's more than just a spirit of camaraderie. We actually have to work together to, to combat that. And we have, and we've done it successfully. Yeah. And you know, I believe that I very strongly believe that that um, that any problem that we solve benefits us, like in more ways than just solving the problem. Yeah, and you're you're yeah. talking not just not just about sort of technical problems, but also political problems and and social problems and everything, right? That all sort of any problem you solve is good for the health of the group. Right. Well, or for the individual, even on an individual level. I mean, yeah. You know, these the 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 the, the children of the rich that are that were driven around in there by their mothers, they're suffering because they didn't have enough problems. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's it's an interesting paradox, and I don't really know how to make sense of it. But uh, very often, when you have a group that has a, have you by any chance uh, read the book? It's called the Full Package. It's no. by uh, 
it's the same woman who wrote the Tiger Mom. You know, she's like uh, I think it's like Amy Cho or something like that. Anyway, she's right. uh, she's Chinese American and she's right, married. She's married to like a Jewish American guy. And anyway, the, the, together they wrote this book called The Full Package. It is absolutely a, a, an incredible book, and it looks at four groups in the United States that vastly outperform everybody else. So they look at uh, Jews, they look at Mormons, uh, they look at uh, Han Chinese and Hindu South Asians. And so it tries to see what are the commonalities between these groups and why are they doing so well. And one of the factors that they find in all four of those groups is they have a sense of being beleaguered. They have a sense that they are, to to some extent, discriminated against by the majority, or but they have a sense of. Uh, anyway, they they go through this, but well, and so she says, ironically, that... people, if if any of these groups, to the extent to which they become more mainstream and more totally accepted in society, they will probably <laughs> cease to be. Um, their their success level will level out. It'll be like more like everybody else, like maybe, right. but it won't. The, that this is a factor, the the sort of sense of being beleaguered as a community, and that we have to stick together, and we have to that actually is highly productive of a community doing well. But you're not you're not saying that it's a sense of of of, of being beleaguered. It's the actual being beleaguered. It's actually being beleaguered that it's the actual problems that they're overcoming. Yeah, that help them. Yeah, that. But the point they make, and maybe they're wrong. Uh, the point they make is that um, obviously, if it's real, then that's that's great. But they say it doesn't actually have to be real. <laughs> so they say, for instance, with the Mormons, um, they have ceased to actually be. You know, they were heavily, heavily persecuted in the 19th century and the early mm -hmm. 20th century. But they've long right. since ceased to be um, in any way. But they still have the mentality of a beleaguered oppressed group and that as she said basically whether it's real or not doesn't matter it still has the same positive effect so let me offer an alternative theory that it's the actual beleaguerment that 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 helped them and then continues to help them now that they're not beleaguered like the lessons that they've learned the cultural lessons that they've learned continue to help them okay so, yeah, now that, you know, this, now that makes sense. You know, that, you know, um, you know, these kids that, that, that are, that are, you know, the bubble wrap kids, mm -hmm. um, they come out handicapped because they really didn't have any problems. They didn't have the, the they didn't learn the lessons that you need to learn to overcome problems. And they didn't bring those lessons into, the, into their life. Yeah. So, yeah, my my friend Jimmy, uh, before he was a parent, he I remember him saying to me, I he, he, he's a comedian, he's absolutely hilarious guy, funniest guy I've ever personally known. But, and he said, you know, I want my kid to be interesting and to be like a good, and so, but I'm afraid he's gonna have too much love and too much support, and he's not gonna be. So I think what I'm gonna do is at night I'm gonna get these bear claws <laughs> mitts, and I'm gonna go under his mitt and go like under his bed and like uh, scare him uh, with, <laughs> to you know make him interesting and have like some like 
some things to overcome. I mean, obviously he's joking, but he's making a, a somewhat similar point to what you're saying, that if you have it too easy, maybe you actually end up being, uh, you know, as, as Nassim Nicholas Taleb says in Anti-Fragile, you, uh, if you have it too easy, you, like his father said to him, you know, if it wasn't for the Lebanese Civil War, you would have ended up being a beach bum. <laughs> Like you would, you would, if you would have had it too easy, you would have been just, you know, coasting. Uh, I agree with that. I, I wouldn't recommend withholding love, though, <laughs> because and this is a, this is an important part. So Nietzsche was wrong. Nietzsche said, "Whatever doesn't kill me um, makes me stronger." Makes me stronger. Yeah. Right. He is wrong. The rule, the real, really should be, whatever I overcome makes me stronger. Because some people never get over their problems. Yeah. And particularly, people who are not loved when they're children never get over those problems. And it harms them their entire life. Yeah. It's so, so sad when you meet somebody who's, you know, like 45, 50 years old and they're still complaining about their father or their mother. And, like, you can tell they've, right. and, you know, every relationship they've had has failed and they blame it all on because of my mom or my dad and, like, they they can't it's hold the job. They can't, and you feel so sad. You know, it's like. Yeah. But you think they're it's, they're right. I think they're right. They're right. I mean, <laughs> not that, it's, that they should be blaming anybody, but there is probably, you know, there are a lot of. I think actually maybe all of us probably some to a greater or, late, large, or lesser extent never get over our the problems of our childhood. Uh, Hopefully, it's to a lesser extent, though. <laughs> and, you know, the, these particular kinds of problems. But if you do get over them, then it benefits you. Yeah, no, that makes that makes a lot of sense. Right? So, but again, just to, you know, I, I want to push you on this issue. Like, what is what is going on with the intense sort of criticism? Of because I can't I can't understand it. I had like, for instance, at my at my job. In my in my work, there have been departmental meetings where people have got into shouting arguments over Israeli politics that have resulted in people getting up and and storming out of the meeting. Right? There's people like that don't talk to each other because of arguments over uh, Israeli politics, and these are, you know. People aren't having arguments like that about other things. There's a lot of things right. that you could get into an argument about, right? That seems to be uh, something that gets people so so excited in a way that um, even local politics, even people arguing yeah. over, like let's say Quebec separatists versus like federalists. I, I know plenty of separatists who get along with federalists and they break bread with them and they can. They get along. Right. I mean, they can have an argument, but uh, for some reason, uh, the Israel issue just—I mean, so, you remember that my my friend Joseph wrote that article that you read, the Israel taboo, right, in uh, the Walrus magazine, where he talked about how uh, people of different politics, different, can talk about all these different things, but the Israel yeah. issue is like a taboo because it just is like a bomb, right? What's going on? Well, there, are, there's. First of all, you have to separate out the Muslims. What's going on with Muslims is different from what's going on in the elite uh, society of America, of the Americas. Mm -hmm. uh, um, 
you know, for, for the for the Muslim, for Muslims, it's just it's a loyalty issue. Like this is the way that they show their loyalty, and um, but truth, I don't really understand what's going on in the intellectual, like in the. In fact, Israelis in general are mystified. Maybe you can tell me about this, this something about this, because Israelis don't know where this is coming from. This like, Israelis understand why Arabs, you know, don't like don't like Israel. But why are the, the left wing of academia? Why why don't they like Israel? Like, what's going on there? Yeah, I mean, well, I I've told you my theory, and I think it's very incomplete, and it's just sort of it's a very it's kind of boring. I mean, but that's why I'm asking you. But I'll repeat it, I guess, for the listeners. But I, I think it's it's a very practical thing. There's, uh, I, I had a wonderful, wonderful uh, teacher once who showed us. He, he went up to the board and he showed us the, a National Geographic article from I think it was the 1950s, and it was mm-hmm. an article all on narwhals. You know those things? It's like a little whale with like a big mm-hmm. horn on the front, right? Yeah. Like, uh-huh. uh, and so he it was a National Geographic, and it showed a map of the distribution of narwhals in the world, right? And so there was like, mm-hmm. uh, it was colored up around like you know, northern Canada, around Baffin Island, and there was some around like Norway. And there's, so it was colored. And he said, um, he said, you want to know uh, what's wrong with this map? And we were all like, well, I don't know. And he said, and then he showed another slide and he said, here's the actual distribution of narwhals. And it was a much, much larger, cute area colored in. And he says, why do you think for over 150 years, the distribution map of Norwals was this. And we were sort of like at a loss, at a loss. And he goes, because that's where the uh, scientists went. That's where they went. Norwals are found in a lot of very inaccessible areas. And the people who live there, the Inuit, uh, they were not asking the Inuit, where are the Norwals? Finally, you had somebody who was smart enough to say, uh, hey, uh, do you know where the narwhals are? <laughs> and they said, "Oh yeah, <laughs> they're all over the place." And they showed them all these other places. So it's uh-huh. the, it's a sort of a version of the old joke about the economists looking for the keys where the light's good in the middle of the parking lot, right? Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Uh, my theory is that a lot of it is just very practical. So, Israel is a country where a journalist from Montreal who has written extensively, "Israel sucks, Israel sucks," saying all these like stuff. And anybody who's at the border, Israeli, can punch into a Google search, uh, John Faithful Hamer, you know, journalist, and can see that I've written all of these kind of things that are very critical of Israel, and they'll let me in, stamp my passport, (laughs) and then I can go, and I can interview people, and I can, like, write stories and send them on the internet over while I'm in the country as a foreign guest. Uh, I, uh, and I can send, post all these stories. I can do interviews with people where, uh, and so it's very accessible. Whereas if you try to go into, if I'm a journalist in Montreal and I try and go to Saudi Arabia or I try and go to like, and um, they're going to look, okay, they're going to do like a search on my name. If I have written anything nasty about Saudi Arabia or something, like this is going to be a problem, right? And I definitely, once I get in the country as a journalist, I'm not going to be able to move around freely and interview people and take like, for, this is going to be very, very, very difficult. So I think for practical reasons, uh, a lot of Western journalists write on 
the problems that are going on in Israel for the very practical reason that they can get to those problems. You know, in the same way that the, the Norwals, the, the distribution was because that's where they could go and that's where they could study them. Uh, I don't think where a lot of these conflicts are happening in the world uh, to get there would be difficult. You might have to, you wouldn't have a nice, you know, comfortable hotel room. You wouldn't have, you might be, it might be physically very dangerous, even if you could somehow get the government to be okay with it. It might be physically an uncomfortable, dangerous place to go to. So um, I think part of the reason why Israel is on my front page so often is because it's easy for it to be on my front page, if you mm. know what I, do you know right. what I mean? But Israel is a, is a, is a uh, I don't want to say Western, I just said Israel is not Western, oh, yeah. but <laughs> Western-like country is very accessible. You come here, you get good food, you drink the water, you can do anything, you know, go anywhere you want. You can find these other, you know, left-wing people. You can find Israelis who are fit into this group. Not many of them, but you can find them. And you can't do that in, across the border in Egypt, for example. Yeah. No, <laughs> not at all. Not at all. You could get yeah. in a lot of trouble. <laughs> so. You can't drink the water. You can't you have to stay in places that you say. You know, it's, it's, not, so, it's, not, it's not as friendly a country. And so, but I also think there's like this Amodian thing going here. Okay. Here, that is just fashion. It's just a random walk. It's, like why, why a few years ago, why was it, and maybe even now a little bit, why was it fashionable suddenly to wear pants that were falling down? <laughs> like how could that be, how could that be, like, you know, how could that be considered to be cool? Like, uh, but it was considered to be cool. And people who are doing that thought, oh, this is so cool. I'm wearing pants that were falling down. Do you know where it came from? No. You, it actually it actually comes from uh, sort of areas in inner city areas where you have like a huge percentage of people who, especially sort of young males who are in the prison system and going in and out. And when you are locked up, even if it's just for a night or a weekend, they take away your belt because you, you could you oh, could boy. commit suicide uh -huh. with it, right? So your pants droop uh -huh. down and show your underwear, right? And so then uh, wow. very often when people would get out of lockup they would have lost their belt or something like that and so they would come back to the community and they'd have their pants hanging down because they don't wow. have their belt wow. and so that actually became a fashion to walk around like wow. this is i'm a real hard ass i've done time i've like wow. been in prison and so walking around looking like like a, a prisoner with your pants like down around was the fashion showing your your underwear that's where it comes from wow. and then wow. it ended but up that, that it ended up getting exported to sort of because hip hop has become a a global culture, youth culture, American export, and so it it followed with that. But it it originally comes from uh, predominantly African American inner city neighborhoods where they have incredibly high incarceration rates, so much so that uh, prison culture has become uh, part of the the general culture. These were the people that they wanted to emulate. The, yes, the, yeah, the that you should sort of wow. like demonstrate that you were like really hardest. That's wow. where it originally comes wow. from. But anyway, yeah, I get, is I that, get your... is that, that sounds like an urban legend, actually. I, mean, I have a hard time believing that. Yeah, well, <laughs> maybe, maybe. that's what I that's what I heard in Baltimore when I was living there. So they said it came... but I've seen an, uh, I've seen enough crazy fashions go in and out, you know, so 
Yeah. I'm not I'm not completely convinced by by, <laughs> by that story. You know, my my father my father who was um he, you know came up through the Jewish New York uh garment the garments industry. The industry. He would always yeah. tell me yeah, he would always kinda of tell me that that you know if it that the fashion could go anywhere. The fashion that any crazy thing could be a fashion. This was like in the, in the, you know, I don't know, the old days, before yeah. every, um, so, I, 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 I think that this, this, it just could be that, that Israel is a fashionable bad cause of, fashionable cause of the moment. And at some point it will pass, there'll be a new fashion, you know, that's, that's it's a, okay. Yeah, no, that's, that could be, that could be the case. I mean, once again, in that, that book that I mentioned, um, Jean-Jacques Rousseau's Emile, he, it's such a rich text. It's very interesting. But he, ta- he has this whole uh, rant early on in the book uh, where he says, you should be very distrustful of cosmopolitans who go on and on about the problems somewhere else, about suffering people somewhere else. And, uh-huh. he, and he mentions, uh-huh. you know, that the fashion at the time in the 18th century when he was writing this was uh, the, the plight of the Tartars, right? Mm-hmm. And, I mean, most of us are like, Tartars? What's that, tartar sauce? But, <laughs> but the, the plight of the Tartars was, at that time, a, an incredibly yeah. fashionable cause uh, in sort of among European chattering classes, the intelligentsia, right? And he said you should he said you should be very distrustful of philosophers and cosmopolitans who go on and on about their obligations to people in far off places. And he uh-huh, said, this is exactly he, said right. he says the uh, what is this great line? He goes the the philosopher loves the Tartar so that he can avoid loving his neighbor. And he says, what is most important is how you treat the people that you actually live with on a day-to-day basis. And he said, what that in practice means is that uh, a, a true patriot is going to probably be more or less indifferent or maybe even a little bit hostile to outsiders. And he says, that seems like a problem, but he says, actually... Uh, and he's he's arguing against other Enlightenment thinkers here at the time, right? Universalists. Yeah. And he says, actually, you're wrong. He says, uh, most of the time, the vast majority of the time, that kind of xenophobia is actually not going to be a problem at all because most people don't see the stranger. They don't see these people that are in another place. They don't have to actually interact with them very much. So he says, what's most important is how you deal with the people that you actually interact with on a regular basis. It's, it's amazing. It's... Well, I'll, I'll, I think the main thing is that you just don't know what's going on in the, you know, in the distant place. The people who are anti-Israel and some people, you know, people who are pro-Israel have no idea what's going on here. They have no idea what the real Israel is. Yeah, that is so and, you true. Know, this, yeah, they have, you know, there's this caricature of Israel, of the, you know, being this horrible place, you know, Sparta kind of militaristic society that they that kills innocent, you know, children, and that's no, that that place doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. Doesn't exist at all. Not even close. Not even nothing is comparable to that. That's completely a figment of of somebody's imagination. Yeah. No, I, I had a friend when I was a teenager who uh, 
his parents were like hardcore Zionists, but they had they had grown up completely in Canada, and they'd been you know a couple generations in Canada, and they'd only been to Israel you know maybe like once or twice, like very briefly. So they didn't really their Zionism was largely very theoretical, right? They didn't actually live there, and so they brought up their kids with this this hardcore Zionism, and then he at a certain point went to go do his military service, and then he ended up. Uh, being being very good and staying there and doing like a, a couple of years in the military and he he had some very very difficult bad experiences and he came back to Montreal and he was quite traumatized he had like sort of PTSD and he was uh, he was in a rough place for a little while but I remember him in front of me a couple of times getting into big fights with his parents and saying like you know what? You have no idea what's actually going on in Israel. Like you take these really, really strident positions, uh, which uh, and he said and he said exactly the same point you're saying to me. He said the anti-Israel people that I know in Montreal and the and the people like my parents, both of them are taking very strident positions that I didn't meet anybody in Israel who would take such a strident position. You know, like this is clearly positions taken by people who don't know what they're talking about. Right. Yeah, I mean that's uh, that's an interesting point. So that so both of them don't really understand. So I, then I guess the question is, if you don't know what you're talking about, uh, why are you talking about it? Yeah, well, that's a great question. Maybe the question, maybe the reason why you're talking about it is because the other people that you're talking to also don't know anything about it. <laughs> so then it can become a proxy for whatever you you know whatever's going you can on. Say what you want. Yeah, you can you can you know you can. Signal whatever you whatever you want, yeah. Because because there's no reality to, to, to get in the way of your signal. Yeah, it's like Taleb says. You know, the it's the easiest book review to write is of a book you haven't read. Because right. <laughs> then you can just uh, you can just say anything, right? And that's uh, you know, I we had somebody came. I'm blanking on his name right now. He's a fascinating guy. He's from Harvard. He came to our school and he was he was talking about math education and i thought wow this has very wide applicability to a lot of different things but he was talking about why the younger siblings on average this is a robust result you find it across the board mm -hmm. younger siblings learn how to talk faster than older si siblings on average so very often the the first child in a family uh, talks latest, and the young, and then it goes down. The, the youngest kids in a big family are talking very, very early, mm -hmm. and the reason is because they're learning how to talk from their siblings, mm -hmm. right? And so, is that uh, obvious? Well, it it's obvious, but this guy took it to to another level, which I thought was very, very fascinating. He said, "Let's say, uh, imagine a, a hypothetical um, spectrum between zero to ten when it comes to knowledge of math. Uh, and like, let's say 10 is like a you know, Nobel Prize level winner, and then zero is you know absolutely nothing. Uh, he said, uh -huh. who is best able to teach somebody who's at a level one how to right. get to level right. two? Or, right. or two. a three to a four? And he said, right. now, you would think that the more you know about math, the better. No, actually, somebody who's at like a level eight is going to introduce all sorts of complicated concepts and complexity mm -hmm. that is actually going to make it very hard for them to right. 
take somebody from a one to a two. The best person to teach you to take you from a one to a two is a three. Right? right. Or somebody that's closer in your knowledge. Right. So this is how this is how education works. Right. And right. so uh, by the same token, I know as a as a teacher, when you're teaching on a topic that you uh, you know enough about to give the intro class. Right. Um, mm -hmm. You could teach on that topic very, very well. Right. Whereas if you know a great deal, if you've studied in depth a particular topic, you have to consciously do this calculation where you uh, you just I don't want to say dumb things down, but you basically you simplify things in a way yeah, that it's, okay. you you simplify things in a way that people are going to be able to understand it if they're at a certain level. So you, you right. use language that and concepts that are going to be available to them. Right. And but you have to consciously do that. And if you don't, you lose them. Right. So I, what you're saying about people talking about Israel, that's that's an interesting point that the fact that, that a lot of these people don't really know very much about what's going on. It allows you to speak, you know, it, it much more. You can it, you can engage in the narrative fallacy much more. Right. Right. Well, like I say, nobody knows anything about Israel. That's what I <laughs> that's my experience is that nobody who's not Israeli knows anything about Israel. Like. It, I, I, everything, everything I read about Israel in the newspaper is like is wrong. It's not <laughs> an Israeli newspaper. It's just a, it's you know I don't know I don't know what the you know why can't they come here why can't they come here and learn what the real country is? I don't know what you know these experts. I mean these journalists who are supposed to be experts in their field of, of knowing about the world. No, nothing. Mm. It's, it's, it's really <laughs> frustrating. So what would you, if, if you were in like sort of Israel 101, what would be the, uh, I don't know, like if you were teaching an Israel 101 class, what would be your introductory five-minute uh, monologue where you'd say, here are the you know, top three things you need to know about, about Israel to understand Israel? Well, the, the, first, the first thing that I would say the most important thing to know about Israel is that Israel is basically a normal country filled with good people who are trying to do the right thing. They go to work in the morning. They take care of their children. They, and they, they care about doing the right thing, even to their enemies, even in very difficult situations. And the, and, 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 we just happen to be in a situation that's very difficult. And the second thing is that ethical dilemmas are real dilemmas. They really, when you are, that, 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 um, if you have an ethical dilemma, it's not clear, it's a dilemma because it's not clear what the right thing to do is. Yeah, that's why it's a dilemma, yeah. And, People think people think that oh yeah you just have to do the right thing and not do the wrong thing. Well, it's not always easy to understand what the right thing is. You know, when you have, I don't know, you know, a, a, a child, you know, with a throwing rocks at a car. Uh, you know, 
you go, you, what do you do? You go, you go up, it's a little child, say it's a 10-year-old child, he's throwing gigantic rocks that kill people, like, big enough to, to expect, he's like, say, in a high, a high place overlooking the road and throwing rocks down at the cars. These people have died under those circumstances, getting, like, getting their car hit by a rock. You have to go and you have to run after that kid and you have to catch him and you have to take him to jail. And he's a 10-year-old kid. Is that, is, you know, that sounds like cruel. You know, there's a, I, one of my Facebook friends recently put up a, a, um, an article whose title was, was, um, was children being separated from their parents. Like this is a big thing in America right now. Sure. This was about Israel, the Israeli you know, the, the Israeli soldiers separating, taking these children, you know, to wherever they take, take them. So, you know, you have to stop, if a child, a 10-year-old child is doing this bad thing, you have to stop them. But they're still a 10-year-old child. How do you deal with that situation? I have absolutely no idea. There's no, there's no analog here in Canada at all. So, I mean... So, there's nothing. I mean, so the way that Israelis do yoga, which I think is like the best way under the circumstances, is you do take you take the, the, the kids to actually, you know, this is this is what would happen in America, in Boston where I grew up. If I were like doing something like, you know, you know throwing rocks down at cars from from a, from a bridge or something, the policeman would come and take me and take me to the police station and then probably call my parents or whatever. And that's what these. That's what what what. The Israelis do with these kids, except that we can't. We know that that in in, in Israel, we know that we can't just send them back to the, the parents, and the parents will say, "Don't ever do this again," because the parents are telling the ones that are telling the kids to go out there and throw rocks. Yeah. So that's, that's I I can't imagine what that. <laughs> I mean, like I I know if a kid was doing something like that here, I mean, I was I was a bratty kid, and I got I got in trouble with the the police. You know, a couple of times when I was a kid, but uh, always like I would get in tons of trouble when I got home, a lot of trouble. And I was aware of the fact that if I did something like that again, that uh, I could be sent to reform school, which would be right. technically separating me from my my mother. I mean, it would yeah, be it really would be separating you. It would be separating me. I'd go to like reform school, which is here is called Shawbridge, and uh, I would go there. And it was like they would try and straighten me out. I mean, but definitely nobody would ever would no adult in my life, even, you know, and this is a crazy thing. Even the criminals I knew growing up, the people who were like in the biker gang, no adult in my life would have ever said that it was a good thing for me to throw rocks at a cop. Like no, none of them, like, they would never say, they would all say, you know, you show uh, due respect, you don't do that. That's an extremely bad idea. Like, so I can't actually imagine what that would, what a situation like that would do. I, it would, it seems very inherently toxic and I, I don't know. I, I'm at a loss. Uh, this is just one of the things that, 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 that happened. Like right now, right now there's a strategy um, the Gazans have a strategy of flying kites and like helium balloons and attaching to those, to those things with these burning, something that's burning. And they fly, flies over the border and lands in a, in a field in Israel in summertime now with no rain for months. 
and sets the field on fire, or sets the town on fire. It sets, like, and a huge area of the southern Israel along the border of God has bur been burned this way. So what do you do about that? Any other country in the world would have just shot those people who are flying the kites. You know, you're flying, you're trying, you're attacking me with these kites. You're, you're, you know, on the other side of the border. You die. Mm -hmm. That's the way. That's the way. You know, the rules of, of combat in a, are different from the rules of, you know, you know, I know, you know, policing. And you're like the other side of the border, attacking from across the border. We can do things. We can we can kill you. Yeah. Well, when, I mean, when the when the United out. States did that to Canada in 1812, we uh, <laughs> sailed down uh, down the Atlantic <laughs> and up the Potomac, and we burned the White House down. Right. That's that a true story. Yeah. We like yeah. we. That's and that was because they were like shooting missiles uh, into our country over the border. Right. <laughs> so, so, so what is Israel? Israel does not do that. None of these people are being shot. That's why they're still going on. Israel developed, a, like, they tried, first they, they, they just tried to put out the fires as soon as possible. And recently, within the past week or something, they developed this, like, this system using drones to like go and disable the, the, I don't know exactly how it works, disable the kites, disable it before, before it reaches their destination. Wow. Why is Israel not, not shooting these people? Why? Because if we did, the whole world would 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 would, would, would condemn us for shooting innocent people. All yeah. they're doing is flying kites. Kites that fly over the border border with grenades attached to them and flying fall into kindergartens. That really happened. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I, I I can't you know, like I said, I I really. It, it strains my empathetic capability because there's not really like I can't even imagine being a cop. You know, like I, I teach a lot of uh, kids who are in the police tech program at John Abbott College. It's it's the biggest police tech program in the province of Quebec. So a lot of my former students are cops. I see them, you know, in uniform with their guns in the car. Like, hey, my Professor Aber. Like, you know, like I see them, but like uh, like a lot of Montreal uh -huh. cops are former students of mine. So I and I look at. Uh, the neighborhood I live in in Montreal is where all the bars and clubs are, right? So if I'm going out on a Friday or Saturday night, there's just, you know, all drunken people partying and stuff like that. And I watch the way cops have to deal with, like, drunken people. Uh -huh. you, know? you have a guy who's, like, just obnoxious and he's yelling at you, swearing at you in your face and all this stuff. And you have and, a gun. And yeah. they, have, they yeah. have to, like, keep their cool. Right. They have right. to. And I, I've seen this happen so many times. And I think there is no way I, I would be a terrible police officer because if somebody's <laughs> yelling in my face and swearing, I mean, I'm going to I'm going to like I'm going to do it back. I'm going to hit them. I mean, I'm going to do I don't have that kind of stoic calm. Right. And I, I suspect that you would learn. I suspect you would learn. But I don't know. There's some there's some that don't. There's some that don't know. Exactly. It's a, now let's ramp that up. Imagine if it's not just somebody is swearing at you and calling you lots of names and it's like yelling in your face and being really, really aggressive. Imagine if they're actually throwing things at you and hitting you. That takes it to a completely other level. How do you not do something back? I mean, like, well, you have to be like, a, I don't know, the Dalai Lama or something. I, I don't know how you, like, you'd have to be very it, superhuman. It's, it's difficult. And, you know, Israeli soldiers, you know, 
these aren't policemen, they're soldiers, like 18 year old kids who have to deal with this. And sometimes they don't. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes things happen that shouldn't happen. Well, the, the guy uh, I told you about, who was uh, my friend who was in the Israeli army and then came back and he had the PTSD, he had that because he was in situations where, uh, where he did things that he afterwards what, felt very sad and regretful about it. But, but it was exactly what you're talking about. It was like uh, he felt very legitimately, he felt under attack because he, he was under attack. And he because he your adrenaline goes crazy and like you respond... And he goes, then he felt really, really bad about uh, things afterwards. But he says it's very hard when you're in such a high-tension, adrenaline-pumping, right. crazy fight-or-flight uh, mode at all the time to not make mistakes when you're, as I was, 19 years right. old. You know, right. so... Uh, um, people, you know, Israelis are human too. Not all of them... No, not everybody stands with you know stands up to the pressure. Some of them are you know truly bad, you know, bad eggs. Although the army does goes to great lengths to, to, to make sure that those people don't become soldiers, don't become mm -hmm. soldiers in a combat situation. Yeah, yeah. Philip, uh, uh, Philip Zimbardo, the guy who wrote the Lucifer Effect, understanding how good people uh, become evil, and he he was the president of the American Psychological Association for long time he's an amazing guy but he talks about this in, uh, in one of his one of his books i can't remember which one but he talks about the israeli military and other uh, law enforcement agencies and militaries and these extensive psychological testing that they have to try and weed out sadists and people with issues yeah. and he yeah. says uh, he says they're very very effective in weeding those people out and then all the, all you have to worry about after that is do you develop a, a toxic institutional culture which can turn right. normal people into sadists? Right. But uh, but yeah, no, he talks about the the measures that they've taken to weed and those people well, out. Well, they got a very great length. Um, a friend of mine had a, had a son was uh, um, one of the classmates of his son was killed in a terrorist um, terrorist incident and his whole class was like prohibited from going to combat oh wow yeah because they would be of, just you and, know yeah they'd be wanting this, revenge this, this yeah. kid, they wouldn't be wanting they wouldn't they wouldn't but just the, the, the potential that maybe one of them would would be you know Affected by this incident was enough to like to make the whole. You know, they, there are other places where you could put, put people, but this was like one of the top schools, like was one of the like, places that every year like contribute like contributed a lot of a lot of um, soldiers to like the top combat units, like year after year after year. And then this one class, they they wouldn't take them. So it was a very. Um, this is the kind of thing that you know they're very very worried about uh, you know, who becomes a combat soldier. Yeah, that's amazing because that's, you know, most militaries have actually uh, harnessed those sort of things. If you look at pictures of American 
fighter jets in World War II, uh, there's a lot of you know, Life magazine had a whole sort of episode with this. And if you look at on the side of the of the planes, they would like write down like the names of their friends who had died. Right? They would write that down, and this was co- totally allowed by the Air Force that you would write the and, and they they were very clearly like I'm going to sort of avenge the death of these close friends and right. Oh. And even well, like, even, yeah. That somebody dying in a combat is different from somebody dying in a terrorist. Yes, um, yes. Yeah. It, you know, that's. It, uh, especially yeah. like at a young age, at a, if you're a high school age kid, you know, not, not in the army. Um, the things that, that happened to you when you were a child affect you a lot more than them. Sure. And it can, it can radicalize you a great deal. I mean, absolutely. I mean, we, uh, Nassim Nicholas Taleb's most recent book, Skin in the Game, we both, uh, mm-hmm. you know, really enjoyed the book. I read it with a bunch of friends here in Montreal. We got together. We had a big discussion about it. One uh, sort of claim that he makes, and I wanted to ask you about this. One claim that he makes in there, which uh, quite a few people were just very fired up about. And people who liked the book, in general, this claim, they... They were wrestling with it. And I want to know what you think. He says that probably uh, the problem, the Israel-Palestine issue, all this stuff, it probably would have resolved itself a long time ago if you didn't have the interventionistas, if you didn't have yeah. all of these backseat drivers um, yeah. sort of pitching in. Do you think that's true? Uh, yes, 100%. And in fact, he says, in the, I think he says, in the book, if not, he says somewhere else that he talked to people on both sides and they agree with him. Yeah, so I was one of the people he talked to. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he probably talked to Jaffer as well about it, because I can imagine probably. Jaffer agreeing with that proposition as well, right? So, uh, I think if if we were on an island in the Pacific and nobody cared about us, you know, or in Sri Lanka, yeah, we would have come to some kind of kind of. Um, Compromise, and that would be it. We'd just be living together. But particularly, you know, on the, you know, the Palestinians, they have the entire Muslim world, you know, telling them, you have to fight this war for, you know, for moral reasons, for pride reasons. You know, they're not fighting with Pakistanis or whatever. They're, they're not, they're not the ones dying, you know, being persecuted by Israel. Uh, you know, the Palestinians suffer the consequences of fighting with Israel, but they're 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 not, not only encouraged they're encouraged um, uh, uh, ethically, you know, but also with money. They get, you know, the whole leadership of of, of Palestinians is financed from outside of Palestine. Um, so the, you know, the leadership has skin in the game of pursuing the con- of conflict that the the average Gazan is does you know he's suffering mm-hmm. but you know there's a very strong um, ethic of solidarity in the Muslim world and, and a very strong you know loyalty is extremely um, is is um, a very important value in the Muslim world especially or especially in the Arab world loyalty um, I'm a big fan of loyalty, mm-hmm. but, I, but, but, 
but in the Arab world, I think it's, it's um, they have too much loyalty. Well, sure. It's like, I, you know, we were talking about the problem of loyalty. It's like, it's a virtue, but it needs to be, and this is what you were saying about ethical dilemmas. It's a virtue that needs to be balanced against other virtues, right? Any virtue, as Aristotle right. rightly said, taken to an extreme becomes a vice, right? So loyalty taken right. to an extreme right. can become, you know, if you're loyal to a cause at the expense of truth and, and, you know, beauty and honesty and justice and other things, it becomes a problem. So... No, absolutely. Right, it's, uh, right. So you think it's maybe taken a little bit too too far, prioritized a little too much. much. Well, that's my theory about the Middle East in general. That that um, that they value loyalty too much. That, my theory about the West in general is that they don't value loyalty enough. <laughs> Yeah, like there's not enough of a sense of solidarity in the West. And one of the great things about Israel is like, you know, there's a lot of solidarity here, and solidarity is good. It's something that you you feel, you feel good, you know, you feel good being a member of a team. Yeah, you feel good. You know, people. This is one of the things that gives us meaning in life, like that makes us be part of something larger than ourselves. Yeah. Being a member of a team, yeah, loyal to a group of people. Yeah, this is what Jonathan uh, Jonathan uh, Haidt talks about in uh, The Righteous Mind, right? Mm -hmm. Understanding why good people are divided by uh, religion and politics. Right. He, he, taught, he says, we're very groupish by nature, and we have right. this craving to feel like we're part of a team, exactly like you're right. saying. And so even if if we don't have a team be because of, you know, we're not very connected to a religious group or an ethnic group or a political group will create them and so he, he will go and like become obsessive blackhawks fans or will become right. uh will will basically create a team with other people and start behaving in a group because that's how deep the craving is to right. feel right. like you said that kind of sense of solidarity right so it feels good and i think it's something that israelis have that most Western countries don't have. I don't know all of the Western countries. Yeah. Maybe Denmark or something. Yeah, some of the small ones have it. Um, certainly not in the United States. Um, but in, but at the same time, it's not so so strong that like, I, 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 I can argue against, you know, against the group if I think it's true. It's like some, if I think that, that, um, I don't know, Israel is doing something wrong or something or some, I can say that and it won't be excommunicated. I won't be yeah. like called disloyal. I won't, in the Arab world, you can't do this. Like this is like this, you got to have those crazy things like, you know, the Jews are poisoning the wells and of course the Jews are poisoning. You know, it's like, I'm so loyal. I think that the Jews are poisoning the wells. You no, know, I'm so loyal. I think the Jews are, are, you know, <laughs> They're doing this other crazy thing there. Yeah. Know, and you can't, you, if you, if you argue against it, you're likely to be accused of disloyalty. Even though you say, I'm not disloyal, I'm perfectly loyal to the Arab cause, but this is, this is not true. <laughs> yeah. So they, they engage in, you know, what Taleb would call very costly signaling. So it's yes. like, yeah, the, it's, uh, what was the, one of the early church fathers, he said, like, I believe it because it's absurd, 
right? The I and so very often uh, within one of the ways, and this is a classic sort of group dynamics. One of the ways that you really demonstrate your loyalty to the group is to affirm a something that is so patently false, and to say it. And you see, when you see people doing this, you might ask, "What is that guy doing? Like he knows better. Why is he saying the Jews poisoned the well?" Because by doing that, he's not te he's not speaking to you. He's affirming his loyalty to the group by saying that absurd claim. Right. So you can uh, you can look at many if you look at a lot of different group dynamics, if you look at people, I mean, probably a hilarious example is Roger Stone. Right. Roger Stone has a huge tattoo of Nixon on his back. I mean, like this is costly signaling. Right. Uh -huh. This is saying I'm not just going to embrace the the sort of the lovable, huggable uh, icons of the the right in the United States, like Reagan or even Barry Goldwater, I'm going to embrace Nixon, right? And <laughs> and I'm going to tattoo him all my back. That's costly signaling. And yeah. you look at that and you say, why would you, this disgraced uh, politician that did these horrible things, he he's an embarrassment for the movement. No, yeah. by tattooing him, it's costly signaling. So I, I get what you're saying. Right. It's like it's a. Uh, or like left people, you know, in the in the fifties who are still making apologies for the saying Stalin, you know, the terror and the gulags didn't happen all the way up until like the secret speech. And there's still these people, you know, most of them, if you strap them to a lie detector test and you waterboard them and said, Tell me, do you actually believe this is not true? I'll bet both of them would say, No, I think it's true. But it was costly signaling to deny mm -hmm. the existence of it, right? Yeah. Right. Uh, and one of the other things that talks, that talks about is uh, minority rule. Yes. Right. That, they, that the extremists take over, um, take over society because the intolerant, the intolerant minority takes over. But you have to ask yourself, which intolerant minority? When does this happen, and when does it not happen? Yes. It's, the intolerant minority succeeds when they can attach themselves to some kind of virtue. So people with peanut allergies like succeed in getting rid of peanuts for entire towns yeah. because they attach themselves to the virtue of kindness, right? We don't want to kill a kid. We don't want to be nice. We want to be nice to these kids. They, you know, you know, it's also possible to say, okay, you know, you have this problem, you deal with it. Yeah. You bring your own food, you'll be tolerant of you bring your own food. No. And that's the way other problems are, are handled. We don't, we don't, you know, it's only some, some problems that get this, like, this treatment, you know, the peanut allergy treatment. There are other allergies that people have that don't, you know, I don't know. Why? Yeah. You know, oh, why by the way, just, just a little footnote. Uh, Montreal has actually reversed its position on this. So they actually, they, they went in the direction of the intolerant minority. They banned peanuts in schools completely. They made it mm -hmm. a really big deal. But then uh, our health that services works. found that actually by indulging the minority, they made the problem bigger. So the incidence right. of peanut allergies went up seriously. And there were more kids being brought to emergency room with severe. And so they actually right. found out that... Uh, having desensitization is better, 
right? So they reversed them. And so now they've said your kids are allowed to bring peanut butter sandwiches again. And they've told parents that have kids with peanut allergies, it's your problem. Teach your kid to be responsible and careful. It's your problem. It's not our problem anymore. So they, they actually reversed themselves on this, right? Okay. So that's a good yeah. one. So, so, but in, um, in Muslim societies, you see this, 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 uh, this tendency towards Islamic extremism. And it's like, why, why do the Islamic extremists have this power? It's because they attach themselves to, you know, Islamic virtues and you know, they consider, even by, even people who are less extreme than they are, consider themselves to be like good in some way. Yeah. That's better. Oh, I wish I could be so good that I, that I, you know, whatever. <laughs> what if I did? Yeah. And when it's relationship to Israel, and of course, attaching us to the loyalty virtue, like, uh, you know, it's easy for somebody who's distant from Israel to be like, I'm going to express my loyalty to, to Islam by being anti-Israel. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's no downside if you're like, Iraq or something, uh, and that's why that's 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 why it happens. Yeah. Well, just to, the question that people were bringing up with regard to Taleb's whole thing, which you you agree with, that if the interventionistas were out of the picture, this problem would have been solved a long time ago. Their objection to it is they said, well, sure, it would have been solved, but it would have been solved uh, by basically ethnic cleansing in one direction or the other, that either you would have had, if you didn't have intervention from uh, the United States and from Western powers, that, uh, you know, if you didn't have, like, support in various ways, then the surrounding countries would have just completely obliterated uh, Israel, and as they've many have said they would like to, or conversely, um, Israel would have just completely flattened, you know, the Palestinians and would have like just basically it would have resolved itself the way human problems like this usually resolve themselves, which is uh, winner takes all. That there would have been uh, a clear victory for one or the other and and terror. So they they say this idea that the that there would be a peaceable conclusion is possible, but if you look at human history. Uh, there, I'm not saying I agree with this, but this was the argument. They said, if you look at human history, uh, it is much more likely that uh, one or both, one side or the other would have lost completely than mm -hmm. that they would come to a peaceable uh, conclusion. What do you think about well, that? When I, say, when I say outside inter intervention, I include our immediate neighbors, you know, Egypt, Jordan, Syria, as outsiders. Okay, okay. That, so I think that if it's just us and the Palestinians here in Israel, no outside intervention, everybody would be leading, just living a good life where they are. You know, I'm not saying that you know the Palestinians would have been, you know, resettled in the Palestinian areas and not kept in in, in refugee camps. You know, this is kind of a weird situation to have Palestinian refugees in refugee camps. In Palestine, wow! No place else in the world are 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 is it, are, are people like that considered to be refugees? So why is you know, that happening? Have, why is that happening? That doesn't make any sense to me. It doesn't make any sense because it doesn't make any sense because there's 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 a, a United Nations organization for resettling from all the refugees in the world, 
And their task is when they're, you know, when they're refugees, they like Vietnamese refugees. They try to find home for those homes for those Vietnamese refugees. They try to either get them back into Vietnam, find a home there, or, they, or if they can't do that, they put them in other countries, and they and the, the problem gets solved. That's true for all the refugees in the world except for the Palestinians. And the Palestinian for the Palestinians, there's a different organization called UNRWA, U-N-R-W-A, and their and their job is not to resettle. Not to solve the, the refugee problem. Their, their job is to perpetuate the problem. Their job is to keep the, re the Palestinians in refugee camps forever. Them and their children and their grandchildren and their great children, and they're still there rotting away. And of course, they multiplied. There were originally 800,000 refugees, Palestinian refugees. Now there are 5 million. Wow. And, and, they are being prevented from from becoming, be, 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 you know, not becoming refugees. At the same time, the War of Independence, what we call it in Israel the War of Independence, um, that created the 800,000 Palestinian refugees, it also resulted in 800,000 Jewish refugees from Arab countries that came to Israel. And they came, they were put in camps. They really called them refugee camps. We call them um, 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 transition, transition camps, something like that. Mm -hmm. because, because there was no place to put them. They put them in camps with tents, and, and they all, you know, within a couple of years, they were all resettled in Israel. And full full citizens, just yeah, just like everybody else. Are, yeah. Their descendants are, at the same time that these refugees, there were 800,000 refugees from Arab countries, there were also another million and a half refugees from other parts of the world. The, you know, the Holocaust refugees and the, the other, who also came at the same time, a million, you know, over a million Jews, Jewish refugees came in 1948 and the, and the following few years, um, and their descendants are, are Israelis, are these, you know, and the descendants of the Palestinian refugees are still rotting away in these, these refugee camps to this day. Why are they there? Because the Muslim world, the outsiders, are keeping them there. Could you imagine? Even now, even with five million Palestinian refugees, if they were just resettled in all the Muslim countries, it would be like 0.001%. Like each country would have taken a tiny, tiny percentage of its population as refugees, and the, and the refugee problem would be solved. Mm -hmm. No more refugees. But they don't Instead, want to do that. They, so, yeah. <laughs> they don't want to do that. They don't want to do that because these Palestinian refugees are valuable tools to be used against Israel. They don't want just a peace; they want a just peace, which means that these Palestinian refugees, 500, 5 million of them, have to go back into Israel. You know, the the the, the five million re descendants of, of Jewish refugees from Arab countries, they don't go back. They don't, you know, they were they, they they've already been resettled. They've built their you know built good lives. They have children and grandchildren now, and you know they can't be resettled in, a, in their original Arab countries. That would be uprooting them again. Yeah, they're home now. They're, they're so. This is this is like one of the things that you know it's completely unnatural to be in a refugee camp. Yeah, that you know, people don't people don't 
um, naturally stay in refugee camps. They stay there because they're being, you know, kept there, and they're give, you know, given food and support by the UN, you know, in Arab countries, Muslim countries. Yeah. Well, there's, uh, you know, that American show. It's it's based on an Israeli show, uh, Homeland. You know, I've, I've heard of it. I've never seen it. Yeah, it, I can't remember the because it's a, a Hebrew name, but it's based on. It, an Israeli, a very popular Israeli TV show, right. and so they right. adapted it. But it's a it's a fascinating show, fascinating show. But uh, on one of the episodes, they go into this camp, or this refugee camp, and I remember thinking this was such a bizarre, bizarre like sort of subplot in the episode. And so I, I went and like asked some people. I'm like, is that true or is that just fiction? And they're like, no, that's actually real. I said, but that's that's crazy. And so then I was like looking up on Wikipedia and I was like, oh my God, this is actually real. <laughs> it's, just, it's, it's very odd. It's like, um, yeah, I, I don't know. It's, I mean, how do you think this is going to go? Like, how do you see this? Do you, do you see any resolution to this in the future? Do you have hope? Do you, can you see a way out or are you just sort of frustrated? And... Uh, I do not see a resolution at this time. That's sad. But I don't, no. but, 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 you know, that doesn't mean there won't be a resolution 20 years from now. Things can change. And, uh, you know, I don't know what's going to happen with Trump is, like, reorganizing the Middle East. Things might change. Might, you know, he's... The, between Trump and Iran and, this, and, and what's happening in Syria, I, anything could happen, really. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, but you uh, think you think basically Trump has been so far, uh, he's been good for Israel, on balance. He's been good for the Middle East in general, uh, and the, Obama, you know, Obama basically thought that the Middle East was like made up of like kindergarten kids in kindergarten that were didn't get along with each other. Yeah, oh, that's a very uh, common idea here. In, in North America, it's a very, very common idea uh, that, yeah, that it's basically... Right, I know it's a common yeah. idea. Like, oh, why can't just everybody just get along with each other? Like, yeah. You know? Like, I have, to give you an example of how, how unbelievably arrogant this can get, uh, I, I know somebody, very smart guy, um, who came up with, I remember when he told me this, I, I was speechless, that I, I actually had to walk out of the room because my wife thought I was going to say something very rude, but... Uh, his PhD topic was, he said he could solve most of the problems in uh, between the Israelis and the Palestinians, that he thought that most of their problems were basically just linguistic, that they, that they did not uh, know how to, that there was things that were lost in translation, and that if you could, it's like a, like a marriage counselor solution to like, you know, problems, and like, that if you could just get them to talk to each other in the right possible way, that um, that you could solve that so much of this is based on misunderstanding, and so I mean that is that is to some extent goes to the core of I mean everybody has blind spots regardless of what your politics. Yeah, so so but that's a liberal when, blind when, spot, right? That everything is just a problem with language. Yeah, but you know what? He wouldn't say that about the conservatives <laughs> in your country. Yeah, I guess I guess. But his point was, I said, but don't you think sometimes? Um, people have conflicts 
because they actually want the same thing or because what they want conflicts like sometimes it's a zero-sum game sometimes uh, conflict is not all just a function of bad communication right or misunderstanding sometimes conflict is based on they have good reasons to be in conflict well you know i wouldn't say good reasons i would say it like this conflict happens because it's in somebody's interest to, to to pursue the conflict, or more than one person's interest. That there are people who, in the Middle East who, who benefit from the conflict. And that's why, it ha you know, the, the, the um, Iranian regime, they, their reason, you know, reason for being is, is their Shiite revolution, you know, the Islamic revolution. They want the whole world to be Shiite Muslim, mm -hmm. starting with the Sunnis, yeah. starting with the Middle East. You know, this is, you know, it wasn't so long ago that Christians wanted something similar. Oh, sure, yeah. You know, <laughs> you know it's not such, a, it's not such a, a, a strange thing from the point of view of, you know, who, what human beings are. Yeah. Right? We shouldn't think that this is, this is something weird, some aberration human aberration that we have to just that has some easy fix to it no this is the way human beings have always been yeah and and there's no easy fix to it because human beings are still the same way they are you know are still that way yeah no what's an aberration is democracy and, <laughs> and pluralism yeah and pluralism yeah that's an aberration so and you have you know isis you have you have a whole bunch of places you know assad you know, what, what's 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 going on with Assad? Why is he such so so cruel? Well, he's he's cruel because he's his leader. You know, Assad comes from the from the Alawi sect. The Alawi sect is a minority sect of Islam in Syria that have basically taken over the entire country. And if he ever loses, if his if the Alawis and their allies, which are you know Christians allies, ever lose. They will be wiped out. Wow. Or at least they think they'll be wiped out. I mean, wiped out like murder. Yeah. By the Sunnis, by the Sunni majority. You know, that's a pretty good incentive for <laughs> the conflict. Yeah. It's uh, that would be a very, yeah. I mean, that's that's one of the things that a lot of people outside of Western. When I see my students who come from third world countries that don't really have a lot of democratic institutions and things like that. Uh, one of the things that I have to impress on them that what is what is really key to democracy, to functioning democracies, is not so much that we have elections, although obviously that's a part of it. It's peaceful transition, power transition. That's what's actually the fact that um, Obama wins the election and there's not riots in the streets the next day. People are like, well, right. that's the, you know, and maybe some people are very upset, but life goes on, right? The, the fact that, uh, you know, Trump wins and people are very, very upset, right. but life goes on. That's what right. makes a functioning democracy. What you're talking right. about right. Is, is what is the reality in most of the world, which is right. you lose an election and you could lose your life, your business, your livelihood. You could lose everything and all your family and friends. 
That's right. Not just you. Everything you care about. Yep. Everything. Stakes are so high. Friends. Yeah. And it's, and it's really happening. I mean, it happened with the, the Yazidis. Happened happened with the Christians in Syria. It's it's not just a hypothetical problem that people are facing. It's actually going on now. I mean, there are a million refugees in in Europe now because of you know because of this. Yeah. Yeah, and, but it's an, an existential threat. It just raises the stakes to such right. a dangerous you know right. level. I mean, at that point. You know, and I, I don't know how you get, you know, I don't know how you get around that. I mean, that I think actually that's also part of the problem from a, as an outsider. It seems to me part of the problem with Israel in the Middle East is that that existential threat issue. When you have people saying, we want to flatten you, <laughs> like, we want to flatten you. We want you to like not exist anymore. Right. And when you have, I, I know, I know good people that are basically completely decent people who've, said to me with a straight face here in Canada, you know, the easiest fix is why don't, why don't like the Jews just all leave? Just like go to New York and Montreal and like the United States, you know, all the money that they spend on foreign aid and things like that to like, why don't they just use that money to pay to like transport every Jew in Israel to, and they say this with a straight face. And these, right. these are these are bad people. That that creates, I think, a sort of an existential threat that makes it raises the stakes a great deal. Right. Right. I, I mean, Israelis are, you know, completely aware that if we ever lost the war, we would be dead. All of us. Completely. You know. This wonderful civil, we think, you know, this wonderful civilization that we built here, this Jewish country, and all these unique, you know, things that we've done here, would be just completely gone. And that, but in, in spite of that, in spite of that, Israel is not, you know, Israel is powerful enough to be, to have. The highest standards of ethics in the world, you know. Israel really does have the most moral army in the world, especially at least in, in you know, when we can be. You know, in Gaza, the incredible tolerance. You know, the Gazans are trying to get their own people killed by Israelis, and Israelis are trying to defend themselves without killing Gazans. This, that's you know, isn't that a weird thing that that? The Gazans are trying to kill as many Israelis as possible, as possible, and Israelis are trying to defend themselves from being killed while killing as few Gazans as possible. I don't think that happens anywhere <laughs> else in any war in the world, and it won't happen in cases where Israel is, uh, is less powerful. There's the war of Hezbollah in Lebanon, and there, I think there will be. We're not going to be so kind to the Hezbollah because we won't be powerful enough. We won't have, you know, we have. A lot of control over what we do in Gaza. We can be very, um, very careful. And in spite of that, of course, Gazans get killed. Gazans get killed. But we can't. We, we can't. We don't have that kind of control in, in Lebanon. And when if, if Hezbollah attacks us, and they probably will in the next few years, a lot more civilians are going to die. Mm-hmm. And ironically, people are not going to care as much about, about them. 
Really? Because, because, yeah. Why? Why? Because Lebanese don't have as much sympathy as Palestinians. <laughs> I don't know why. Okay, yeah. I, I, I know, I know that, that in the last Lebanese war, like there was a lot of anti-Israeli stuff going on, but it was approximately the same level of anti-Israeli stuff as, 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 as was going on in the Gaza war, where like nobody got, like almost no Gazans got killed. Yeah. Like a few hundred. In the last war in, in 2012, a total of, I think, a thousand Gazans got killed, and there were, the vast majority were soldiers. Yeah. It's a... Less than two happened. So, and, and, and we got, you know, and the whole world was up in arms about, oh, Israelis, why can't you be more careful? Why don't you, can't you defend yourself without killing so many people? And, and we did. The last Lebanon war, you know, a lot more Lebanese died. And it was about like the same level of, of, of fewer in the world. Hmm. And yeah, if we ever have to attack Iran, you know, it'll be even less control. You know, what's Yeah. No, I did, I I remember what what I find funny is that here in Montreal as a general rule, and I'm sure it's probably the same in, in New York and LA to a large extent, uh Lebanese that I grew up with who are, you know, whether they were Greek Greek Orthodox, whether they were Shiite, Sunni, Jewish, like people Lebanese, like they all get along. They all get along completely and they all get along with like with Jews, with Israelis, they all seem to, and even if they, their countries, you know, back in the Middle East are getting into squabbles and stuff, they all get along here. And they, very often, I've heard sort of puzzling, saying, you know, I don't understand, we can get along so well here, <laughs> why why can't we get along, like, over there? And I, I guess it's we just... We do, we do, we do. I deal with Arabs all the time, we get along fine. It's not, you know... On a one-to-one -one level, on a day-to-day -day basis, we do get along. Okay, so but there's a lot of interactions. But how can you? I mean, can't you? You can't even go into Lebanon if you've got an Israeli passport. Well, Lebanon. I'm talking about. I'm talking about the local. Okay, local. The local so. Arabs. The local, yeah, and everybody gets know. along. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So you don't see for the for the time being, you you don't see any kind of. Solution, but you're open to the possibility that there could be one in the future. Right. For 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 you know, I don't know what's going to happen in a hundred years or yeah. a thousand years. Um, I think things can change dramatically over time. You know, the, you know, during, in the last five hundred years, Christianity went from the Spanish Inquisition to now. So. Yeah. That's a pretty big difference. Um, and things can change very suddenly. And, uh, and maybe it'll change soon. Maybe, you know, Israel is, 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 has good relations now with, with Egypt and Jordan and Saudi Arabia and the Gulf countries, the Kuwait and Qatar. And, you know, all these, as good with, because of Iran. Plus, here's another example the outside, <laughs> the outside, the outside threat is, is bringing us, is creating solidarity between us and, and the Arab countries. Yeah. A few years ago, no Israeli would have expected that to happen. We can thank Obama for that, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think? Ed, fact, yeah, this is sort of the, I, 
I have to ask you this. It's sort of the, the elephant in the room. What What do you think is the relationship between anti-Semitism and sort of anti-Israel uh, sentiment? Like, what is the? I mean, I because there, there's of course there's people who say that that's a cheap shot that you can't sort of you can't that that's a way of like getting away from legitimate criticism. They say, well, you know, they, I, you're just sort of telling. Telling me anytime I criticize Israel, you're calling me an anti-Semite, and right. So, but what do you think the relationship between those two things is? Well, first of all, I think that there is a lot of illegitimate, illegitimate criticism of Israel, and it's, and calling that anti-Semitism is is reasonable, just you know, without relationship to any anything larger, because. You know, when, when, when you expect, you know, when one Israeli, you know, murders an Arab, like, once every five years, and you use that to criticize Israel, you know, you're not going to find, you know, when you expect that, that, um, all, that in order for Israel to be above criticism, all, Eight million Israelis or six million Jewish Israelis have to be perfect. You know, none of them can be criminals. None of them can be bad people. That's anti-Semitism. No, no other country is, is, is held to that standard. Mm-hmm. No country holds itself to that standard. You know, you know that there are people. There are plenty of bad people in Canada. Yeah. You know, you don't consider that that they are that the country is the whole of Canada is a bad place because there are you know people murder. You know, people in Canada. Yeah. <laughs> there are murderers in Canada. So, so you don't have to go outside of, of, of Israel to, 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 you know, outside of the, um, uh, the Israel issue to, to, to say that, that being anti-Israel is anti, um, anti-Israel in this way is anti-Semitism. Now, whether there's a larger connection, as a you know, kind of like a, a historical or sociological point of view, um, I think in the Arab world there's certainly a connection. You know, the the Arab world has um, has basically adopted all of the old Christian anti-Semitic ideas. You know, they the um, Protocols of Elders of Zion is like a big, like, a popular book in the Arab world. It's just wild. It's wild. And, and all of these, these, um, these stereotypes of Jews that you know, the Christian stereotypes of Jews, like the Antichrist, kind of have been have been adopted in the, in the Arab world and are popular in the Arab world. Even though, like, there was no time that 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 that. Um, the Arab world was really friendly to Jews. Like, it was never like that's kind of there's like a kind of a myth that, that Jews and Arabs got along once. They really didn't, but not. But they didn't have these stereotypes of Jews. They had different other stereotypes of Jews. Mm-hmm. So uh, that has been propagated for like from top down from the from you know for because of because of the. Um, for political reasons, because of the, the actual conflict between Israel and the Arab world, uh, but it, 
you know, that's connection to anti-Semitism there. In the West, um, I don't know. I, I, I think that 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 um, in the West, there's a connection also that the stereotypes of Jews, like Jews were the the, the um, the anti-Semitic ideas against Jews was very different from the anti-Semitic, the, the, the racist ideas against blacks, say, or that, like, um, uh, Jews were pictured as this, like, powerful group, like, there are, they might be, like, like, um, uh, uh, hated, considered the inferior, Jews were inferior, but they're also powerful. Yeah. So it's kind of an envy, fear combined with so, yeah. So that that idea doesn't that that stereotype of, of Jews as powerful um, doesn't fit into the modern um, uh, notions of anti-racism, where they where where you um, which. Uh, uh, where, where, where you try to, uh, you know, the modern anti-racist was based on, on disempowerment. Yeah. Right? Saying, oh, this group is disempowered, and that group is disempowered. So the Jews are like, well, wait a minute, this Jew group, I mean, we were, Jews were disempowered. That was the reality. But, but, but the fact that, that there was an anti-Semitic idea that the Jews were very powerful meant that, that we could just accept that, oh, the Jews are powerful, therefore they don't deserve any of the special rights that all the other minorities uh, get. Yeah, it's almost more analogous to um, anti the anti-Mason movement of the 19th century, or the, yeah, the idea that there's like a conspiracy of powerful people that are acting against the interests of the whole, and so you... You kind of you you hate them, but you also fear them because you think that they're very powerful and they're they're pulling the strings right. behind the scenes, right. and that that was so. It's that that's an interesting point. I just realized my producer just knows that the time I've been having such an amazing time talking to you. I didn't realize it's been like three hours. So we should probably wow. uh, we should probably wrap this up, but we should definitely okay. talk. We should definitely talk again. Yes, yes. But uh, fact, what do you got to do? Yeah, tear this down to an hour. The, no, 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 no! It'll be the yeah. full, full length. No, we don't, we don't edit. Online? We don't edit at all. So it's oh, that's actually one of our. We don't. Uh, we don't edit people because part of the problem that we see with with the media in general is uh, everybody's engaging in like gotcha journalism, and you try and make somebody yeah. sound in a way that fits into your agenda, right? So this is like a long form discussion where you let the discussion go where it goes, and you don't edit people's words, you know, with an agenda. <laughs> well, I, I, wasn't, I wasn't suggesting that you edit my words. Yeah. Um, then we could break it up into more than one. Yeah, that's, uh, uh, that's possible. It's possible. But anyway, it's been wonderful talking to you. And wonderful to like, hear too. your voice uh, in person. And I look forward to talking to you on a daily basis, as we always do anyway, <laughs> by message. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. All right. Take care, David. Well, that'll be it. You too. Thank All you right. very much. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye.